You're listening to episode 36 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the origins of Green Lantern and Poison Ivy. And yes, the story of Hal Jordan's Eskimo buddy is in there too. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and no evil shall escape the sight of my honest and fearless guests, because they're the hosts of the Lantern Cast, Chad Bokelman and Mark Marble. Welcome back to the show, fellas. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here, Ryan. You don't mean that. You so don't. Yeah, actually I do. I can hear it in your voice. No, it is great to have both of you back on the show again, finally talking about this character. Uh, Chad was on previously talking about Guy Gardner as well as Hal Jordan in the Justice League's origin, and Mark, you were on when we talked about the Guardians during the Millennium crossover. Now, at long last, we can talk about the man who, well, he might not be everybody's favorite Green Lantern, but he is the most iconic, the most popular Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. This is one of my favorite characters. I know you guys like him, but before diving into his story, we must speak the oath. The sacred oath. In In brightest day. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics. In blackest night. With each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. No evil shall. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990. Escape my sight. And also included three annuals and one special. Let those who worship. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner. Evil's might. Something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Beware my power. Green Lantern's light. (laughs) Alright guys, we need some origin stories of our own. Mark, I don't think you had the chance to really tell us last time when you were on the show how you became a Green Lantern fan. So when and how did it start for you? Actually, I didn't become a Green Lantern fan until right around Emerald Twilight, shortly before the first real issue of Green Lantern that I picked up was Green Lantern 46, the Reign of the Superman tie-in. And that, again, that was just because I was so into the Reign of the Superman. And then and then I didn't buy I didn't buy Emerald Twilight when it came out. I didn't really start reading Green Lantern regularly to Kyle's first issue in 51. And then because of my interest in Kyle and my interest in Parallax, then I kind of went backtracked and learned more about Hal. So I kind of became a... Hal fan because of Kyle, which is not probably the way most people did. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> going about it backwards, but yeah. Yes, it was backwards. It's not entirely unique, but I think it's certainly not 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 the, the, the beaten path. <laughs> 
Uh, Chad, you gave your Green Lantern story, but that was like 30 episodes ago. So what's a quick recap? How did you become a Green Lantern fan? Two lines uh, or less. <laughs> uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, I was uh, waiting for a movie to start, and I was killing time at a Borders next door. I got the Showcase uh, volume, the, the black and white volume of the Silver Age Green Lantern stuff, but they didn't have number one. They had number two, so I got that. I just figured, you know, what the hell? It doesn't really matter. Uh, and I also picked up Green Lantern Rebirth. Uh, loved all of that. Started reading. Uh, went to a comic shop. Picked up a Green Lantern issue. It was the Final Crisis Rage of the Red Lanterns one-shot special. And I have got every single issue of Green Lantern since then and gone back and at least digitally got every single major appearance of Green Lantern from Alan Scott's first appearance all the way until now. So at some point in there, I joined the Lantern cast and then they handed the reins over to me and then I brought on Mark. And now we've been doing it for two or three years now together. So you fools. <laughs> and we've really survived in this golden age that we've we've been hosting during. Well, uh, in terms of volume and quantity, I mean, you've certainly had enough material to cover. This was certainly a, a prolific era in terms of the the quantity of the Green Lantern franchise. Um, my own story for the character: I knew of him from the Super Friends, the old cartoon, and I think I had a hand-me-down version of the Superpowers action figure. And because that was my first exposure to Green Lantern, that was the one I knew. It was the Hal Jordan version. Uh, When I started collecting comics in the very early 90s, I know that I got a few issues from that 90s run. Like I I remember getting somehow issue 5, which I think was the Return to Oa issue. But I don't remember why I would have picked it up. It might have been in like a, a brown bag deal that like my comic store had where you buy like like you give them like three dollars and they give you five or ten just randomly selected issues that they're trying to get rid of. Um, <laughs> the first Green Lantern comic that I chose to purchase deliberately, um, interestingly enough, Mark, it was issue fifty. It was the end of Emerald Twilight. Uh, so a very, you know, where Hal goes bad and becomes Parallax and has this major dramatic change in the character. And it was cool, but at the same time, like, by the end of that, I was like, well, now he's not the guy I remember from the cartoons. Now he, he looks different. He doesn't have that. And then when they introduced Kyle, I was like, he doesn't look like the the guy from the cartoons and from the old toy. So I'm not really interested in this guy. So I didn't have that pull to the character, even though I, I always thought he looked cool, but I wasn't getting that in from the Parallax costume or from Kyle when he was in JLA. So it was really when I came back into DC Comics in the mid-2000s, one of the first non-Batman books that I picked up was Green Lantern Rebirth, and I freaking loved it. I mean, that just, it, it hit me like both barrels, and I started collecting the book like right after that. Um, I, I, just, I loved the entire, like the first era of Johns's run between Rebirth and the Sinestro Corps War, and... I've got kind of a sentimental attachment to the Hal Jordan character, and I don't—I haven't mentioned this on the podcast, but when I got married, I wanted to do something special for my wedding party, and I got them little gifts, but I wanted something more personal to me, which meant something geeky or comics-related, uh, and I decided to give each one of my groomsmen and the woman who did the reading an action figure based on the seven founding members of the Justice League. Uh, the woman in the group got a Wonder Woman figure, my brother got Batman, uh, the one non-white groomsman got Martian Manhunter. Uh, the other guys got Superman, Aquaman, and The Flash. 
and I kept Green Lantern for myself. And I explained why, because Green Lantern's power comes from his ring, and I was going to be married, so I said that, you know, I was going to be more powerful when I put on that ring, and everybody went, aww, and I got to be romantic and geeky at the same time. And it was all because of Green Lantern. So for that, among other reasons, I've always had a, a special place in my heart. Yeah, we've actually had listeners of our show uh, in the past tell us that they, when they got married, they had like "In Brightest Day and Blackest Night" engraved on the inside of the ring. Oh, nice! Of, of the wedding ring, uh, at least one person I know for sure has done that. So, cool. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of people yeah. have a lot of connections between the two. <clears throat> also, the the Green Lantern figure I kept for myself was a John Stewart figure, and I justified <laughs> that by saying that my wife really wished she, she was marrying a black man. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my! Yeah. Anyway, welcome to Secret Origins. <laughs> <laughs> kind of fits in with the Hal part of the story, though. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, the publication history for this guy. After the Barry Allen Flash debuted in Showcase issue four, Julie Schwartz gave writer John Broom and artist Gil Kane the job of reimagining Green Lantern for the Silver Age. Kane kept the Power Ring and the Energy Lantern. But that was about it. He overhauled and streamlined the new hero's costume, and John Broom ditched the magical aspects of Green Lantern's origin in favor of a science fiction approach. The new GL was more of a space cop, part of an interstellar peacekeeping force known as the Green Lantern Corps. This new Silver Age Green Lantern, whose real name was Hal Jordan, as we said, debuted in Showcase issue 22, cover dated September 1959. After two more trial appearances in Showcase 23 and 24, Schwartz must have thought the new guy had some legs, because Hal Jordan's fourth appearance was in The Brave and the Bold issue 28, which saw the coming together of multiple DC heroes to form the Justice League of America. In the summer of 1960, DC launched a new self-titled Green Lantern series, and a few months after that, Hal appeared regularly in the ongoing Justice League of America series. I haven't counted the actual numbers, but he would go on to appear in most of the first 220 issues of Justice League. As for his own series, sales of Green Lantern started to dwindle by the end of the 1960s. Schwartz brought in writer Denny O'Neill and artist Neil Adams to give the book a shot in the arm. They sort of did, sort of didn't. Beginning with Green Lantern issue 76 in 1970, O'Neill and Adams partnered Green Lantern with the Emerald Archer Green Arrow and took the characters on a cross-country road trip to explore not just the physical geography of America, but the socio-political realm as well. History would view the historic Green Lantern Green Arrow run as a game-changer in making comics relevant and the beginning of the Bronze Age for DC Comics. At the time, however, O'Neill and Adams failed to boost the book's sales enough, and after only 14 issues of this new phase, Green Lantern was cancelled with issue 89. The cancellation only lasted about four years, though. In 1976, Denny O'Neill picked up the series with issue 90, this time with Mike Grell on pencils. The new life for the Green Lantern book would last 10 years. In 1986, after surviving the Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Green Lantern book was rebranded Green Lantern Corps with issue 205. But that series, too, would come to an end with issue 224. After that, Hal Jordan got the lead feature in Action Comics Weekly, starting with issue 601 and lasting until 635. It's notable that his last appearance in Action Comics Weekly came out in January of 1989, the same month as this issue of Secret Origins. 
After this, Hal only received a handful of guest appearances the rest of the year, until later in 1989, the miniseries Green Lantern Emerald Dawn set the stage for a brand new Green Lantern series in 1990. In the early 90s, DC thought it'd be a good idea to break their toys. They killed Superman and broke Batman's back. Their plans for Green Lantern were a little different and longer-lasting. After Hal's hometown of Coast City was destroyed during the reign of the Superman story arc, Hal basically went to the dark side. This is the short version, folks. He snapped and became a villain called Parallax. He wiped out the Green Lantern Corps and tried to rewrite history in his own image during the Zero Hour event. Branded a villain, Hal sacrificed himself to save Earth's sun and thus everyone on our planet at the end of the Final Night miniseries, hoping his death would redeem him in the eyes of the other heroes. Still, death would not keep Hal Jordan away for long. He was brought back to the DC Universe as the host for the new version of the Spectre, God's Spirit of Vengeance. After a couple years like that, Jeff Johns brought Hal Jordan back to life in Green Lantern Rebirth. Since 2004, basically, Hal Jordan has been the star of the Green Lantern franchise. Guys, Hal has appeared in countless other comics, tie-ins, guest appearances, and other books, but was there any really significant things that I left out? Uh, no, not really. Um, I mean, I, I, I would say in regards to the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, at least in, in as far as it pertains to Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, in addition to changing the way that we view comics as being able to tell a relevant story, it also pretty much broke the comics code. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, now I, to be fair, Marvel did publish that whole Harry Osborn doing drugs and, mm-hmm. you know, that thing without the comics code. But... In addition to that, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams did a two-issue uh, storyline called Snowbirds Don't Fly in which they reveal that Speedy is shooting up heroin. And that was an image on the cover. <laughs> and that bore the comics code seal of approval. So uh, it definitely played a part in breaking the, the comics code. As, as, as Neil Adams himself once told me, the code didn't, didn't go away, but they took the fangs out of it. Mark, anything else that I left out? I don't think you left anything out. The only thing I guess I would add would be after Rebirth, Jeff Johns, just be, beyond bringing Hal back, he just kind of – it was like a the golden age as far as the popularity of Green Lantern that we no longer <laughs> – we no longer are in. But we were – we pretty much were in from like maybe – at the very least, we were in probably from like 2006 through 2009 going through the Sinestro Corps War, building up through and tailing off at the end of Blackest Night. So Jeff Johns helped transform Hal Jordan to probably – based on relevance, not based on, they would never say it, but again, based on relevance, one of the trinity, at least for at least for two or three years in DC, along with Superman and Batman, that Green Lantern was maybe for the only time really up in, right up there and holding his own with uh, Batman and Superman. And- oh, absolutely. No, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I know some fans, they might you know prefer Jeff Johns' work with the JSA or his earlier work on The Flash when he was still writing for Wally West, but I, I think it's pretty hard to dispute that you know at the end of his career, if Jeff Johns is remembered for one thing, it should be his work on Green Lantern. For like whatever it was, seven or eight years that he worked on that book, taking it from just kind of a mid-tier title to a franchise that could support multiple series, four or five different series, an animated series based on the character, a a live-action feature film 
based on the character. This is all spinning out of what Jeff Johns did with the character, and I think it is among the best Green Lantern stories ever told. So yeah, I, I definitely think when he was the the head of that book, it I think it might have lost some steam after Black. I definitely think it lost steam after Blackest Night, but certainly like at at its peak. Yeah, it was. I, I think it, I mean, it rivaled Batman for sales, and it was selling better than any of the Superman books. So, yeah, definitely. And it gave Green Lantern his greatest profile. He's raised his Q factor probably higher than it's ever been as, as far as you know the public across the board, and it's kind of makes the fall even more painful now. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the movie. I mean, obviously, you know, the movie, <laughs> movie wasn't that great. But it, Jeff John's run on Green Lantern is why we got a movie in the first place. And it was an early example of the mistaken impression of Hollywood whitewashing their superheroes. Right. <laughs> because for so long, like in the early 2000s, people thought of Green Lantern as Jon Stewart because of the Justice League cartoon series. And mm. then they make a movie with a white Green Lantern. And a lot of fans are like, wait, what? But it's like, yeah, he was first. That's it. <laughs> anyway, people, that, we are That go- doesn't matter. None of that matters anymore. <laughs> All right, people, we are going to take a short promo break. But when we come back, Chad and Mark and I will reveal the secret origin of Green Lantern. To tell you the story of Green Lantern is to tell you the story of the birth of a universe. The origins of DC as a whole. It's a magic emerald meteor from space in the 1940s. It's the establishment of the JSA. It's the birth of the Silver Age. It's the introduction of a universal police force. It's the formation of the JLA. It's the emergence of the multiverse. It's a crisis in both space and time. It's an emerald dawn. And it's an emerald twilight. It's the brightest day. And the blackest night. And the Lantern cast covers all of this and everything in between. We're Green Lantern's greatest advocates and fiercest critics. We've been fans for years, and it's the reason we're self-proclaimed Lanternologists. So find us on iTunes and Stitcher and give us a listen, because the history of Green Lantern really is the history of the DC Universe. And we've got the interviews, commentaries, reviews, and more to back it up.
Secret Origins issue 36 has a cover date of January 1989. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, however, the on-sale date was November 22nd, 1988, which was 25 years to the day after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The cover was penciled by Mike Carlin and inked by Eduardo Barreto. And if listeners recognize the name Mike Carlin, it would not be as an artist. According to Mike's Amazing World, this is the only comic cover he ever penciled. He did write the script for the origin of Mr. Miracle back in issue 33, as well as some Star Trek comics for DC, and at least relevant to Green Lantern, he wrote a story in the final issue of Green Lantern Quarterly. Still, I'm sure most people know Mike Carlin as an editor of the Superman books in the 90s, where he presided over the Death of Superman storyline. For being Carlin's only artistic credit, Chad, what do you think of this cover? Um, For what it is, I mean, just taking it at face value, I like it. It's pretty good art. I mean, the... You know, the, the ring looks great. I mean, the, everything looks fine to me. The only problem is I don't see this as a cover. I would see this more as an interior page or something like that. I don't like super close-ups as covers, typically. So it's probably more of a personal preference thing to me. For me, I think covers for things, especially especially series like uh, Secret Origins, work better when there's you know you can do a full-body shot or at least a three-quarter shot. Uh, you know, there's some interaction between the characters, maybe even the, uh, you know, a, a good positioning of the title logos for the characters' names and things like that, and interesting usage there. This just seems like, uh, you know, a $60 two-character head sketch you get at a con. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As opposed to an actual cover. Mark. But, I mean, it, it is good art, so I'll say that. Mark, what do you think? I agree it's good art. It's... It throws me off a little whenever you see Howe with his mask on and you actually see his eyes too. That's mm-hmm. kind of, <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of, I get used to that a little bit more now. But it's still, and stylistically, based on what the the points they're trying to get across in the cover, I guess it makes sense to do that on this cover too. Because if his eyes were just white, you kind of wouldn't get the same. You couldn't realize the way he's just like looking to the side at her. All right. On a, on a funny side, you just I just see Hal and with, with poison ivy draped all over him, and it's like any port, <laughs> any port in the storm, <laughs> Hal. <laughs> but. Even though I don't, I don't, I know that doesn't really seem like poison ivy to me either, to a certain extent. Uh, I don't know why necessarily, but I agree with both of you guys. Like, as a as a sketch, it's fun, it's flirty. I like the idea, but for being the cover of these two characters, I get no sense of what they actually look like. Green Lantern has one of the coolest costumes, I think, in in any superhero in DC's pantheon. It's such a sweet, smooth-looking costume, and I can't see it. All I can see is his face and part of his hand. And I can't see any of Poison Ivy either, just her face and her hands. I I completely agree. It's too much of a close-up. If this was a panel inside the story, or if this was like a jam sketch, like you said, like that you commissioned from an artist at a con, this would be really cool. But... Uh, yeah, I think you're dead on. Like a Secret Origins cover should show me what the character looks like and give me a sense of who that guy is from the look on the cover. I don't get that sense from it. Mm-hmm. It's a nice piece of art, and I'm sure Ed- Eduardo Barreto is doing a lot to help it out with the with the inking and the shading. I think that that really stands out. It's a cool image. It's not a good cover. If this was an issue, a regular cover from the Green Lantern comic, fine. But to be 
okay, this is going to be the definitive secret origin of, of Green Lantern for a couple years, which really was like one year because then they would do Emerald Dawn. <laughs> but Mark, are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Green Lantern? I'm gonna give it. A, I'm gonna give it a shot based on what's in front of me, Ryan. <laughs> do your best. I'm gonna do my best. Uh, let's go through the creative team. Uh, James Owsley, otherwise known as Who Chad, <laughs> Christopher Priest. There we go. Uh, M.D. Bright pencils. Jose Marzan Jr. inks. Robert Greenberger plot assist. Tim Harkins lettering. Anthony Tallon coloring. Mark Wade editor. And we already mentioned earlier in the episode about Green Lantern, Green Arrow seventy six, the first issue of the Denny Neal Neil Adams run, and of course the secret origin of Hal Jordan actually begins with the famous page from that issue, in which Hal's pretty much being read the riot act by an elderly black man saying again how you've you've basically helped people who look completely different than you with all these other different color skins except for blacks. You know you're not helping anybody but the black skins and and how come mr green lantern answer me that so that's how this this story begins and then we kind of get it viewed from a different point of view while hal is pretty much still trying to figure out how he's going to kind of like make it up for his lack of uh what's the best his lack of vision maybe being too short-sighted and and looking ahead but not what's in front of him on earth we now see that this is kind of being seen from behind by a younger black man who i can't help it he reminds me of john stewart all throughout this issue (laughs) He's just kind of looking at this, and he's like, uh, oh, my God, it's Green Lantern in my, in my neighborhood. And you know, he, he comes over to Hal, and he goes, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I just, you know, I've just been a little blind to the situation here, but now I know what, I, what I've got to do and where to start. So Hal flies off and leaves, leaves this kid to, you know, to watch him. And basically we've, now we've, the scene shifts to several years later when this kid is now grown up. His name is Chip. I don't know why. <laughs> but we find out... Chip basically he's working for this org for for this uh, we get more of a description later but he's working for this group and they've had a pilot and the pilot is calling him because he broke his had a broken arm and it's like you're supposed to have been getting me a replacement pilot for like two weeks now it's like we really need one I don't you've interviewed a dozen pilots you've rejected every one it's like we really you know what's the big deal if you got an ad running in every paper pretty much it's like you better pick one today and it's as you know, Chip is hearing this on the phone and everything, and he's getting out of bed. You realize that pretty much Chip has become a major league fanboy of Hal Jordan, <laughs> or Green Lantern. Uh, his his room is pretty much plastered with all pictures of Green Lantern and everything else. He's wearing a Green Lantern shirt, you know. So it's like he's pretty much got a serious man crush on uh, Green Lantern. You say that like it's a judgment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it really isn't, but it, I guess maybe because of the time frame, it just kind of seemed a little odd. It's like a, his, I guess it's not that odd. Certainly in pop culture, we always see that you kind of like touch, you have this moment where you touch, you know, either figuratively or literally touch, you know, touch a famous figure and all of a sudden like, like your whole life changes and obviously chip's whole life changed because of that little encounter on the rooftop so now we see hal jordan who's kind of like <laughs> hal jordan who's actually sleeping in his car during a traffic jam oh hal and a cop kind of is given like reading hal a riot act for like kind of paying attention you need to pay attention to what's going on and hal is lamenting it's like oh i really need a job you know which which is not really surprising if of hal jordan if you know anything about hal jordan he does seem to always be in need of a job or be out of a job <laughs> 
And now we see Hal reference that ad in the newspaper that you know that, that Chip's group had placed, and it's like, oh, you know, I I got to I got to get this job. Pretty much ever since the Guardians' enemies trashed my professional rep last year, which you would really think that wouldn't be a high priority for the enemies of the Guardians of the Universe. We got to make sure this guy can't get a job. <laughs> but he's filling us in on why this job is so important. To be honest, so he's like, oh. I was like, I got, I got to get this job. I was like, every time anybody hears the name Hal Jordan, they just hang up. And he goes, that's why I'm answering this one in person. It says, ask for Chip. <laughs> he really takes this to heart because he shows up at Chip's doorstep. <laughs> he goes, hey, it's like I'm, I've, I'm come about your ad for a pilot. And he goes, hey, wait a second, wait a second. And uh, Chip kind of like goes, wait, hang on. And, and Chip runs into this bedroom and he's reaching under his bed. And it's like, yeah, yeah, here it is. It is you. It is you. And all of a sudden, it's like, a, you're a Green Lantern, which apparently he's like the only one in the universe who can recognize Hal, even without the domino mask. <laughs> and without a bomber jacket, no less. Because Hal's, <laughs> Hal's actually wearing what passes for a suit for Hal. <laughs> and Hal, being the fearless Green Lantern that he is, panics and runs out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> like, oh my god, he knows who I am, I can't deal with this. And I like the fact that he goes, I know I should have designed my costume with a cow. Like, I'll bet Batman never had days like this. And Hal, of course, tries to get out of there, but of course it's L.A., so Hal gets, doesn't go very far, and he's still stuck in traffic. Chip chases him down, like pretty much still wearing his bathrobe. I was like, it's, it's okay. It's like, I know you're Green Lantern. I met you a few years ago back in Star City, and, and hey, and if you're looking for a job, it's like, and all of a sudden Hal go, the gong goes off in Hal's head. It's like, oh, he, he knows I'm Green Lantern. Maybe he can actually get me this job. Maybe it's actually going to be a plus. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm, I am Green Lantern. Let's go back someplace where we can talk. And then, as so eloquently put in the narration, one temporary ring later, for some strange reason, Hal gives Chip a, a Green Lantern power ring. <laughs> and they're both flying in the air. And now that this is where Chip kind of mentions the group that he goes, oh, I'm, I'm not a pilot, but I design planes. I work for this group called, you know, the Gremlins. And Hal's like, the Gremlins? It's like, yeah, we're an elite design consultant group, and we demonstrate planes. And Hal's hearing all this, and first he's excited about it, and he goes, oh, man, I mean, I just flushed this job right down the toilet because there's no, there's no way once I give them my name and my social security number, you know, that's just, that's, that's just going to ruin it, not just because of his rep, but then everybody's going to know who you know, Green Lantern and Hal Jordan are the same. And then, of course, while Hal's kind of like having this moment of woe, if you will, Chip asked him, how did you become Green Lantern? And now we get the recap for a lot of Green Lantern fans they know, for people that don't know, how the previous Green Lantern of Earth Sector 2814, Abin Sur, he crashed to Earth. And, of course, now we – and this version of the origin, Hal – I mean, excuse me, Abin Sur didn't really die from the crash. He more or less was dying because he had a, he had a disease-riddled body. So he crashed to Earth and he was dying. By the time he got there, he didn't have, he, and landed, crash landed. He didn't have much time left. So he sought, you know, he basically, so he had his rings search out the Earth to find someone worthy, someone completely without fear. And essentially, he found Hal Jordan. And of course, Chip and Hal, because now they're flying in space through all this. Chip is like, you're fearless. It's like, it's like you, you, you're fearless and all, all, all Green Lanterns without fear. And he goes, that's what they tell me. And Hal's just like, he's just like fascinated that this kid's so curious. And, and this is like a really kind of, it's an interesting Hal Jordan because it's a really sad or lonely Hal Jordan because he's just lamenting the fact that he hasn't had a friend in so long and he hasn't been able to basically unload all the stuff and, or even just talk to anybody for such a long time. 
he's act, that's why part of the reason he's kind of like getting completely engrossed in this moment with Chip. He finishes his origin, tells uh, Chip about how he was like in this flight simulator back basically as, at, as we know at Ferris Aircraft. And the ring found Hal there. It brought the flight simulator to Abensur's ship. Telepathically, Abensur, you know, uh, communicates with Hal and tells him, you, know, you, you, have, you have to take this ring because I'm dying. He explains the Green Lantern Corps being an intergalactic police force. And we need, you know, you're, it is our duty, you know, when disaster strikes to pass the battery and the ring on to another one who is fearless and honest. And you pass both tests, Hal Jordan. You have to be the new Green Lantern. While this is going on, they, they're still flying all the way to Oa. So, so Hal's really taking this to the nth degree now. <laughs> and he fails Chip on the fact that you know this, pla- this planet used to be inhabited by a race of super intellectuals, as we met in the previous episode of Secret Origins, the Guardians of the Universe. And it was their advanced science that helped create the Green Lantern Corps and the rings and everything else. And they were pretty much were in charge of everything recently, but they pretty much they're gone now. Most of the core lost their power, you know, their rings. The rings were sucked into the battery and destroyed. And Hal, you know, finishes his little talk about getting the ring. He actually got his ring and battery from Abin Sir. As Abin Sir dies, it's like you know, I got to do the right thing. No, I got to, I got to keep the secrecy. No one will know that Hal Jordan is Earth's Green Lantern. As the scene shifts back to Oa, Chip hears, you know, hears some noise coming from part of a citadel on on Oa. So Chip just leaps into action. Hal just kind of doesn't. He kind of just probably because he's lost in his own thoughts. He doesn't really think twice about what's going on. They both enter, and pretty much there's these alien raiders on these cool little, like almost like motorcycle things. <laughs> and pretty much they're, I guess they're yeah, ideally they're just raiding Oa for like for scraps, technology, anything. Pretty much they're just like scavengers. Chip finds out that the ring can translate because he understands what the what the aliens are saying. Hal's all excited. He's like, hey, look at Chip go. He's got enthusiasm to spare. I'm really starting to like this kid. Working with him might be a real blast. <laughs> of course, he doesn't bother to tell Chip about anything about the ring, including the weakness to yellow. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> kind of a big deal, especially when he, especially when there's so much yellow on Oa to begin with. You would think that might have been a good time for Hal to segue into it. But Hal's preoccupied. <laughs> Sort of like Batman taking Robin out for the first night on patrol and not telling him that bullets are dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this might this might actually kill you. So Chip gets blasted by by a, a yellow laser coming from from some of these raiders, and Hal goes, "Where? How? Oh, more raiders behind me!" And, he, and then as he tries to dodge these ra- these raiders himself, he kind of tries to inform Chip about what's going on before he gets, you know, before he really gets blasted because Chip's like, Chip, look out. It's like, a, and he goes, no, it's okay. I'll throw up a quick shield. Like he knows all this stuff instinctually, I guess. And that's when Hal bothers to tell Chip. It's like uh, the beams are yellow, Chip. It's like there's a weakness, the built-in impurity to the to the rings. It won't function against anything yellow. It's probably a safeguard against, you know, any Green Lantern becoming too powerful. We saw how well, <laughs> oh, we would see how well that would work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hal pretty much puts all the scavengers back in their ship and he sends them back to their planet. Chip and Hal talk about, you know, the, the <laughs> back to the real reason why they're supposed to be together to begin with to talk about Hal getting this pilot's job. And Hal goes, you know, there's kind of a problem. Hal, like, Chip's kind of funny when he goes, salary's negotiable. <laughs> <laughs> that, it's like, oh, no, no, that's not it. 
hours are flexible, <laughs> which is kind of important considering Hal's real job. Sure. <laughs> One of Hal's biggest weaknesses in getting a job is flexible hours when you really think about it. But Hal goes, no, that's not either. And it's like uh, Hal like, thinking to himself, it's like, I don't trust you. It's like, I can't trust you. I won't trust I won't trust you. I don't have any friends. Sad sack, <laughs> Hal Jordan. Uh, now we the gremlin. We we get a page of the gremlins talking amongst themselves, and he he call. We see. Uh, I think Hawk is calling Chip. It's like, where have you been? I've left a dozen messages on your machine. Where's my pilot? And and Chip seems surprised. It's like, you got somebody? And it's like, yeah, he's dependable. He's good. And like, who is he? Who? It's like, uh, Chip pretty much says, uh, we'll be we'll be there in ten minutes, and you and you'll see who I'm talking about. And what happens now with you know Hal pretty much recharges his ring. He he recites the Green Lantern oath, and Hal's kind of still tr- trying to figure out you know how we're going to do this. <laughs> and uh, Chip is now without the Green Lantern ring anymore. Thank God. He goes. You got you know, keep a secret. He goes. My real name's Francis. Try not to let it get around. <laughs> and Hal's like you know. I tell you what, I'll keep your secret if you keep mine. <laughs> and then they and they show up, you know, meeting Hawk and the rest of the group. And he goes, "I'd like you to meet our new test pilot, Hal Jordan." Everybody's uh, all kind of cool except for except for Alice. Uh, part of her job, I guess, is being like head of the admin aspect of the organization. It's like, I'll need your social security number, medical forms, a copy of your pilot's license, and a quart—not a pint, a quart of blood. <laughs> and Hawk's trying to figure out how the, how did they get here so fast something about this jordan dude irks me it's like i'm gonna keep a close eye on him and it's like welcome mr jordan to elite design consultants the gremlins the beginning but luckily for us it's the end of the story (laughs) all right was that good enough without a written synopsis ryan that was fine i'm gonna edit out half of it but it's fine thanks (laughs) it's all right i do the same but that's but that's just based on the story (laughs) Chad, what did you think of the story? Um, I liked it uh, for, 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 I say this a lot, for what it was. <laughs> uh, I, I like that the creative team is the exact, well, at least as far as uh, script and pencils, is the exact same creative team as the Green Lantern stories from the Action Comics Weekly series. Mm-hmm. Um, see, the Action Comics Weekly podcast coming to a podcasting device near you. <laughs> nice plug. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> or so he thinks. <laughs> hey, I'm working on it. Um, somebody needs to talk about Wild Dog. <laughs> but anyways, um, I like that it's tied into the uh, Green Lantern Green Arrow series. It's a really good way to grab the attention of the reader uh, because at this point, this is the single most you know popular talked about Green Lantern story ever. Um, so tying it into that is definitely a way to grab the reader's attention. Plus the fact that the opening three panels are literally from that comic book. They're not redrawn by M.D. Bright. Um, it's actually Neil Adams' art. So when you open it up and see Neil Adams, you know, that's also another way for you to get the attention. I think it's funny the, the, when Hal Jordan shows up and he starts rummaging through his room for this one snapshot of Hal. And it's like, just point to the wall. <laughs> pick, pick a wall, <laughs> Chip. Come on, buddy. You've got a bunch of profile shots right there in front of you. <laughs> there are a lot of weird moments and weird decisions in here, and Mark mentioned a lot of them, but I like how, like, you're Green Lantern. No, I'm not. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm Creative, Hal. <laughs> I'm completely without fear, but I, but I just dropped a load in my pants because I think you recognize me. I'm out of here. <laughs> okay, giving him the benefit of the doubt. 
if you if you walked into a room and the person that you're supposed to be meeting for a job interview has pictures of you all <laughs> over the walls. Forget about your secret identity for a moment. Yeah, the smart thing to do would be to get the heck out of there. And, and when he chases you down to the street to your car and says, I know who you are, let's go talk. Like, I was really surprised that the next scene is them flying through the air, like, with, like, two rings. I thought the next scene was going to be, like, from Misery, where Hal is tied to a bed, and this guy is breaking his legs to keep him there. So, so what you're really saying is the real reason Hal was scared is because he thought this kid was stalking him. Wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. That's what I kind of meant in the beginning that it struck me as odd. It just seemed like that is hero worship, and then it's like, oh, it's that, 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 that little, you know, that little br- moment of interaction on top of the rooftop, and all of a sudden it's like you just expected to see like the Green Lantern shower curtain, the Green Lantern backbrush, <laughs> <laughs> a toilet paper dispenser. It's like <laughs> a Green Lantern podcast on his yeah, sadly, that got passed on to us. Thanks, Chip. <laughs> Thanks, Chip. Um, but, does, you know, despite the weird choices, taking him to Oa and letting him fight aliens and all this other crap, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I a lot of weird choices. I've got to say, I don't understand why you needed to tie it into being right after those three panels from Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Uh, because. As Ryan, you have mentioned many times throughout the podcast, through, throughout Secret Origins, John Stewart does not receive an origin in any of these nope. issues. So another famous moment from the Green Lantern Green Arrow series is the creation of the character John Stewart. During Action Comics Weekly, and forgive me guys listening out there, I have not read every single issue uh, of Action Comics Weekly yet. I'm sort of taking it a step at a time. So I don't know where things end with Green Lantern in that particular series. And as such, I don't know what happens to the relationship between Hal and Jon Stewart after the events of the first couple of issues of Action Comics Weekly. However, I, based on the fact that Hal says he has no friends, I would imagine that the relationship between Jon Stewart and Hal Jordan is still strained at the end of the Action Comics Weekly series. It's probably a safe bet. So why couldn't you have tied this to the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, use that bait, but actually use Jon Stewart and this be a story of them repairing their relationship? Maybe Jon's going through a crisis of conscience. Maybe Hal is. Uh, maybe he needs to recap his own origin to kind of refocus himself or refocus John. Like there was a there's a way you could have done this with John Stewart. You have a black guy here who not racist. I'm he looks like John Stewart. Not to mention the fact you put him in a Green Lantern outfit without a domino mask. Yeah, those are so, again those are choices that they made. And so there 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 was a way to tell this story with John Stewart, and they they totally blew it. Yeah, I kept like I mentioned the chat. I kept, I kept reading the story like every beat of the story. I kept reading it, waiting for Chip to actually be revealed to be John Stewart. And then you realize like halfway through, it's like he's really not going to be John Stewart. <laughs> he looks just like him. <laughs> well, this was coming only a couple of months after Cosmic Odyssey and the destruction of Zanshi. Right. So John was in a pretty messed up place at this point in his continuity, and. I don't know if they just didn't know what they were going to do with them, and maybe they just decided not to use this as a, a place to fix the character. I mean, they wouldn't do that until 
like 10 issues into the the Gerard Jones 1990 run, I think. Even maybe not even more than that once it got to the Mosaic series. Like Chad, I liked this story until I started thinking about it. <laughs> and that's that's a that's a weird kind of backhanded compliment because it does not hold up the greatest under scrutiny of any kind. And also it is weird to open it up with this moment and Chad is right, this is one of the most memorable, most iconic moments from Green Lantern's entire history. It is also, perhaps, in my opinion, the worst moment in Green Lantern's entire comic history, because Mm -hmm. I think this single thing damaged Hal Jordan more than any supervillain or parallax did. This little conversation, it set up some great stories in the short term that Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill did together, but in the long term, it was basically like, like up until this moment, Hal Jordan was Maverick from Top Gun. And this was like the moment where Goose dies and he completely loses his edge. And for the next like 20 years after this, after this guy talk, like shames him into not caring about the black community, Hal's story was all about finding himself and trying to keep his feet on the ground and struggling with his identity and everything. And it just, I don't like Hal Jordan in the Bronze Age of comics. And, like, and I think this really damaged him until Rebirth and Jeff Johns started like kind of pulling him out and making him more of that, you know, Top Gun, high-flying, you know, Daredevil pilot character. And this moment of doubt, which I think actually... Ethan Van Skyver had the greatest response to this. He was talking to John Suntress on an episode of Word Balloon years ago. He was talking about this quote when the guy says, you know, you do everything for the purple skins and the orange skins. What have you ever done for the black skins? And Ethan Van Skyver said, Hal Jordan should have said, um, I save Earth every month. <laughs> That's what I do for everybody. <laughs> and like I said, there were there were a lot of great stories that came out of the, the hard-traveling heroes in the short term, but it it knocked a lot of the pizzazz out of this character. And I, I know a lot of fans and a lot of listeners on this, they're not a big fan of Hal Jordan because they were reading him in the 70s and 80s when he was a dick. He was a jerk, and he wasn't a fun character to follow. So, I don't know, I... There are elements of this story that you know, like that, pay homage to that. But this is this is also a weird story because I think by the end, they're trying to bring him back. I think James Owsley made some strange choices, taking this kid, showing him the backstory, taking him to Oa as a way of visually showing what Oa means to the Green Lantern Corps, showing the weakness in a creative way that's not just an info dump, just saying, oh, by the way, the ring sucks when it goes up against yellow, but actually have, putting this kid in danger. Now it doesn't say a lot about Hal's character that he's not thinking about this. <laughs> but, by, it out, kid. <laughs> but by the end of this story, where are the characters left? Hal is a test pilot again with this, you know, young upstart aircraft manufacturing company, and he's got a confidant, a you know, a, a partner, a kid sidekick in this guy who is his engineer and mechanic. It's basically it's it's the same setup as when we first met Hal in Showcase Twenty Two except that he just recasted the people around him instead of Carol Ferris and Tom Kalmaku, which is interesting because we're replacing Tom. Chip is the new Tom Kalmaku, the new pie face, in a story that literally the very next page is going to give us the secret origin of Tom. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was, it was, remember, remember me? <laughs> yeah. 
but then the even weirder because so this story ends with Hal in this new location, this new setup, and this new job. And then Green Lantern issue one, the 1990s, it came out like about a year after this, begins with Hal on the road again, trying to find mm-hmm. himself and saying that the people, the gremlins, aren't talking to him anymore. I have no idea what happened in between this story and that story. I don't know if that is explained in Emerald Dawn or not. I've never read Emerald Dawn because it hasn't been in print for so many years. And I, I love Jeff Johns' Green Lantern Secret Origin miniseries, but because he's the editor, he can have that book reprinted every two years, but it'd be really nice if we could get Emerald Dawn back in print once or twice. Mm. I don't know. Mark, you, you kind of gave us your impressions while you were reading the summary, but any I'm other sorry. notes? I'm sorry. I did enjoy I did enjoy it. It just... I guess maybe it's hard sometimes to look through the prism of you look through it as the through the prism of now, but it's hard to go back, you know, back mm-hmm. track and look through the prism of when how it would have been read at the time. So yeah. some of those some of these things just stand out now more like, oh, just just giving the ring to anybody, the ring working to anybody, not not even giving the kid. Uh, I mean, I guess in theory, he could have given him a teeny tiny primer about how to how to use the ring enough because you would think you would have to do something so they could get into space. <laughs> Or else the guy would choke like once they get in the atmosphere. Uh, I guess to me, based on everything we know about Hal and Hal's relevance and and the character that he is, how important that he is, it just seemed like, especially, and I, I understand the Guardians of the Universe should have a little more of a complex secret origin, be a little more have a little more depth considering who they are and how long they've been around. Mm-hmm. But when you compare this story to the, to that issue, when we when we all did that issue, it just seemed like. This story just doesn't really seem to have a lot of weight behind it, and it seems like, especially as we're going to talk about once we do the story about Tom, Tom is a much shorter story, and Tom has a lot in a way. It kind of makes you think about a lot more things, I think, than this issue than this story does. And it's it's a shame because if you strip out the framing sequence with Hal going for a job and being down on his luck and meeting Chip and and everything else, like the middle chunk, and it's really it's like four pages in the middle of this when Hal meets Abin Sir. That whole bit of his origin is such a great iconic moment. Like that is such a cool origin story that can be summed up in just a couple of pages. Dying alien crashes on our planet, uses the ring to find the one person on Earth who is worthy of succeeding him in this job. And that's what I've always liked about Hal Jordan, is out of everybody in the planet, the ring chose him. There is something special about this guy, which is why I don't like him wandering the Earth, doubting himself, feeling down, feeling like he doesn't belong, questioning himself. No, the ring picked him, and the ring knew what it was doing. And I want to see more of that. And and that's such a cool little moment in... I keep coming back to this like I didn't know what I had. Like In the early days of this podcast, the early episodes, I complained that when Roy Thomas was adapting the Golden Age stories, he wasn't making them his own story. He was just taking what had been written 40, 50 years earlier and basically just transcribing that story. And since Roy Thomas has left, we've gotten a lot more stories... They, they kind of go out of their way to avoid retelling the origin, and they try to splash it up more up and, and mix the origins within a new story. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And this is one where I was like, you know what, I would, I would really like to just spend a lot more time on this moment between Hal and Abin Sur. And I mean, and that's what we got from Emerald Dawn. That's what we got from the Secret Origins miniseries that Jeff Johns wrote. 
I like his origin story, and I do like this story as it's told kind of from a distance. I think there's a fun about this. This actually... The, the craziness, the weirdness, like the choices, this feels like a story written in 1959 or 1960. There's like a, there's a wackiness about this that feels very reverential to the Silver Age. And I think James Owsley slash Christopher Priest was talented enough that maybe that was intentional. I really don't know that for sure, but it's one of those things where like the more you study it, the more you're like, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. Or why would they do that? That's kind of dumb. But if you separate yourself from that part of your brain, it is fun. It is cool. And even the moment when Chip recognizes Hal without the mask, it reminded me of the moment from the movie when Carol says, you know, I've seen you naked. Did you think I wouldn't recognize you just because I can't see your cheekbones? <laughs> Which, by the way, I think is the only part of the movie that I really liked. <laughs> uh, another part of it I liked is that when we get the read, because you, you mentioned we all, we, you know, you, you can tell a recap of his origin in a page or two. We have done that. Mm-hmm. If you read the Silver Age issues of Green Lantern, uh, and I've got like the first two omnibuses here on my shelf, it, it's like every other issue for a little while tells <laughs> you the the secret origin, quote unquote, of, mm-hmm. of of Hal Jordan. It recaps it, and it's usually sometimes in just a page. Yeah, but it works. Uh, but speaking of this, the the origin when Abin crashes. A lot of people don't think of this then because it wasn't really established part of the continuity at that point. What the hell is Abin doing in a ship in the first place? <laughs> like he's got a ring. So I do like the fact that they at least took the time to address it. In this case, he's got a disease. Uh, in the movie, it was because he was badly wounded. You know, things like that. So I do like the, the, the fact that, you know, at least in this story, they took the time to address something that, uh, always needs to be addressed when talking about the origin of, of Hal and Abin crashing to Earth and, and all of this stuff. And I guess technically nowadays you don't really need the ship anymore. You know, Abin is just, you know, spiraling out of control and just takes himself to the nearest inhabited planet and sits on the ground <laughs> waiting for somebody to come find him. But, you know, I do like that when, when people take the time to address those small things that might make people go wait what <laughs> and and John's and John's explained that away by having him doubt that he was losing faith in the in the ring right yeah because because, because lo- of all the prophecy prophecies of that he was losing faith faith in the in the ability of 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 his will and his ring to overcome anything and that's supposedly why he was flying he was flying around in his ship well, he, so, but, he was also transporting Atrocitus. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, but I mean, but in general, but, yeah, but, yeah. but the con, yeah. but yes, you're absolutely correct. But yes, but that that's all like Chad mentioned with the yeah. prophecy. That's all. That was all part of the way John's kind of, mm-hmm. as as we kind of as Chad and I often talk about, and uh, not that we're the only ones, but it's kind of like a running gag to figure out depending on who tells which version, whoever tells. <laughs> The version of Hal's origin at a given time. What's the real cause of Abinsur's death? Why he crashes? Because it seems to always change. The only thing that's really constant is the fact that he dies and Hal gets the ring. <laughs> I really like the ship. I like him being in the ship, and I think that's necessary. I know. I don't remember if it was in the book New Frontier, but it was definitely in the animated movie. They did away with the ship, and they just had him kind of lying there. I, I think, and yeah. I, you really lose something in that. And I think the fact that he is as Hal calls him in that first appearance in Showcase, he calls him a spaceman, you know, in an interstellar spaceman. And he's piloting the ship, and the fact that Hal is a pilot, you get that connection between the two of them. 
and just the visual iconography of him just dying in this debris as his you know his UFO crashes. I think you need that. I think it it helps. It works. You do have to come up with some reason for it to make sense, but you can come up with whatever reasons. I think John's reason made sense. It's part of the game. It's it's fun. It is. It's 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 part of the challenge, and it makes it fun though. It's like. Oh, it's almost like it's almost expected at this point if you're going to tell a version of Hal Jordan's origin. Maybe not in the movie or anything, but if you're doing it from a comic book point of view where you assume people have read a version of Hal's origin somewhere in the past that you, you kind of like add a nuance to it that's a little different. It's like how are you, how are you going to approach it? Some people – I mean not everybody have – they don't have to do that. Some people just do the straightforward, yeah, he crashes and again not, not going into the details of why he was in the ship. But as we kind of mentioned, at this point – because Hal's origin is well known, you know, not as well known in the big picture as Superman or Batman's, but it's fairly well known that you do. I think there is a certain compulsion to try to at least explain the things that people might pick apart, like we talked about how, why you know he can fly, why would he necessarily even need a ship? So things like, this. but it, it's kind of interesting sometimes to see how people you know do give the, give you their take on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking about the creative team, and you guys mentioned that this was the same team that had been working on Green Lantern in Action Comics Weekly. Um, James Owsley, I think I think the Green Lantern stories in Action Comics Weekly were the first things that he did for DC. He yes. had been writing for some stuff at Marvel, but I think that was his first DC work. Mm-hmm. Um, he would go on – he wrote one of my favorite DC series from the 90s, which was The Ray. Uh, that was after he changed his name to Christopher Priest. Um, he, I, I really like his writing. He had a run on Black Panther that was incredible. Um, I, mean, I haven't but, read it, but everybody says it's, that's the Black Panther series to read. And Black Panther is one of my favorite Marvel characters. Um, he like like top two favorite Marvel characters. So I, I absolutely loved his run on that book. So he I mean, also wrote the Sleepers novels uh, that. Uh, oh yeah, that, yeah. That uh, Michael Bailey mentioned to you about the uh, the one that the graphic audio did, yeah, you were, yes, you, yeah, you guys both mentioned that. Um, in terms of the art, Mark Bright's art, what do you think of that? I like it. There are moments that are uh, are kind of odd, like uh, when Abin is pointing. I think this is on page ten. He says that person is you, Hal Jordan. He looks exactly like Lex Luthor with just a, <laughs> <laughs> a different a different pigmentation to his skin. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I I do like the art. I don't know necessarily if it's a good transition from the Neil Adams pages. Mm, no, I don't think they're very different styles, and it's. I, I think the first page after that, it's not quite as jarring. Mm-mm. I think, and this might have been deliberate or just something about the time, I think there are a lot of similarities in just feel and aesthetic between Mark Bright and Joe Staten, who was the other yes. Green Lantern artist from the 80s. Um, I think they, they both have kind of similar, I, I don't know if I really scrutinize them how much I would see, but just kind of at a glance, this feels like a Green Lantern story of the time, and these are the two artists that I think of when I think of the 80s. I do agree the transition isn't good from the you know from the Adams Denny O'Neill page. Uh, it's kind of, but it, it it does kind of fit. Certainly, it fits the style of what we were about to get in the, in the '90s. It certainly kind of like does kind of. It, to me, it kind of does flow into what we were going to get with like the Gerard Jones. Mm-hmm. So from that point, from a trans looking at it transitionally, I think it does kind of work. But yeah, in in, in the course of this issue. I mean, to me, it is kind of par for the course of what the, the art was kind of going to look like. 
mm-hmm. almost are transitioning to what it was going to look like in the '90s. But yeah, it doesn't really doesn't really jibe with the first issue. I mean, first page of the of the story in this issue. So you know, I never really even thought about it. But Chad, you mentioned it. I don't know why they opened with this page. Mm-hmm. Like this doesn't set up the rest of the story. I mean, the the next page, page two, you've got Chip seeing Green Lantern, but it's not like the same moment. Like he's on a rooftop just thinking about that. But Chip could have seen Green Lantern in action doing anything. They could have had that moment, and and you don't have to explain the way that Hal is in kind of a like he's looking for a job and he doesn't have any friends. None of that is explained by the fact that he had this encounter with this old black guy who made him feel bad. I don't know why we needed this page to open it. Uh, well, unless they I, wanted to tie it in, because honestly, because Chip, because of Chip's race and things like that, that in a way, even without Hal making any, that well, Hal wasn't making any kind of concerted effort to end up, you know, liking this kid or palling up with him, because you know, for that for that reason, that in maybe in a way, on a subconscious level, it was, you know, Hal's been taking a step towards, I don't know, I, I don't know. I, I I agree. It was seemed like it was just a a segue or a transition point to have you know this this kid kind of observe Hal in his moment of you know doubt following that you know that interaction with the old man and and just how I'm not I'm not sure. The only thing I could, I could think of was maybe it was just trying to. But I I don't I'm not convinced that Chip's race really has any bearing on the story. I mean I think if he was a white kid or an Eskimo. <laughs> I don't think anything would have changed, but that's. Well, pro- I mean, it's, that's true. I was, I'm just looking at it. May, maybe that there was some subtext to where why maybe thought it might work. Well, let me let me ask you, old fogies, and the guy that does the Secret Origins podcast. <laughs> <laughs> how, are, how, are, how are how are the Secret Origins sales by this issue? Were oh, they that's, dropping? I I've never. That's something that I've never been able to find out. I've I haven't really tried, but I don't know enough about the secret origin sales. That's a major question. Is people keep asking is because every story had a different creative team and a different character, the sales might have just fluctuated rapidly, just from issue to issue. It could have been peaks and valleys, okay. based on just general popularity. I don't know how consistent a reader base it had with somebody who would collect this like a regular monthly issue well you know i have no idea a lot of people in the comments of of various episodes have been saying that you know the 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 heyday of the good stories and secret origins are behind us Mm -hmm. so based on that maybe they're dropping so people pick up this issue of secret origins off the spinner rack and they think oh green lantern and poison ivy I'll flip it and see if I want to buy it. And the first thing they see is this. Neil Adams, and it's yeah. Neil Adams' art. That's probably why they did it. Purely to get the sale. I don't want to say that, you know, I'm completely right on that. But in my mind, that's why I think they did it. I'm not going to dismiss that idea. I mean, it's it's cynical. But, I mean, it, it's attention. It's, I mean, it's Neil Adams on your first page. It's, <laughs> yeah. I like that. It, it's cynical. It disgusts me to my very core, but I'm not going to dismiss it. Yet. <laughs> Would I put it beyond DC Comics? <laughs> well, I, I do want to say that it, you know we set up the fact that Chip is a super fanboy. If we're going to stick up to that, I would really have liked a moment where Chip sort of, and I just I just thought of this, it kind of freaked out about the oath mm-hmm. towards the end. 
because where would have he? I mean, he's a super Green Lantern fan, but where would he have heard it before then? Sure. You know, it's not like you know Hal is always <laughs> he recharges in a stadium and happens to be next to a mic <laughs> and it's broadcast to the entire world what his oath is. You know, so Seven maybe somebody stretch. knows that. Maybe 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 somebody knows out there in its general knowledge that. You know, Hal needs to recharge his ring, and he always seems like he's muttering something to himself. But the fact that he actually is right there as he's doing it, I would have liked to see Chip make a bigger deal out of that. Well, what'd you just say? What is that? You know, like, because he's a super fan. <laughs> he wants say? to know everything. He, he, he wants to know everything. So, what if he, like, that made him question everything? He's like, oh, man, my hero is into poetry. Oh, <laughs> to, oh man. What's the Flash like? Maybe I can be a Flash <laughs> fan. So. Uh, Mark, in your uh, in your synopsis, you mentioned the part where Hal thinks, you know, uh, I I should have, or Hal thinks that he should have had a cowl built into his <laughs> costume because Batman never had it. And for some reason, it wasn't until you said that that I thought, hmm, Simon Baz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should start packing heat too <laughs> yeah, exactly. and stealing cars. Yeah. That's a character I never ever think of until something reminds me of him. It's it's usually your podcast, and I'm like, oh yeah, Simon Bass, that's a thing. I guess we'll be reminding you more of it soon. <laughs> I still don't know who the hell Jessica Cruz is. <laughs> Neither do we. <clears throat> okay, any final thoughts on this story? It was good for what it was, but like you said, it doesn't hold up very well under scrutiny. That summed it up nicely, but you got to use Chad's quote like on the poster. It's like, it was good for what it was. <laughs> it was bad for what it wasn't. <laughs> or, or yeah, it, 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 no matter how you twist it, but since he said it like three times already, that's, you got to go with that. <laughs> As a promo, for, it's got to be this. It's got to be the tagline for this episode. <laughs> He'll put it in the album art that he keeps forgetting yeah. to add to the uh, MP3 it where they download it from iTunes. <laughs> it was good for what it was. <laughs> yeah, um... I really like the bare-bones elements of Green Lantern's origin. This story added a lot to those bones, <laughs> and some of it was muscle and meat, and some of it was a lot of fat. Um, Should have stuck with the skeleton. Yeah. I don't. That was the highlight. You were correct. I meant to say it before. The, the highlight of the real issue to me is the actual origin of Hal Jordan. <laughs> as much of a secret as it may or may not be to people who were reading it at the time, the reality is that is what really, when you're saying the secret origin of, of Green Lantern, you gotta. that's kind of the gist of where you're going with it. And again... I wish the like the end of this story says the beginning, and I wish that's what it was. I wish the st- the status quo going a- after this one was he's a test pilot for a new aircraft company, and he's got a a partner who knows his secret identity, who helps fix his planes. It would have been just a new redressing of that classic Silver Age thing, but that's not what we got when Gerard Jones took over writing the character and. <laughs> Oh, so, all right, let's move on past this story. What are some other Green Lantern stories that we would recommend? Uh, Chad, we'll start with you. Um, you already said it, Ryan. Uh, the secret origin issues of, uh, of uh, Jeff John's run, that came right after the, the Rage of the Red Lanterns, or no, right before the Rage of the Red Lantern story. Um, so I'm going to say, forgive me for not looking it up, but the I'm going to say that starting around issue 26 uh, and going into the 30s because uh, issue 25, I believe, was the end of the uh, Sinestro Corps War. Um, so, so right around issue 26 of that series. 
that's an extremely good recap of not just Hal's origin as a Green Lantern, but Hal's origin as a man, why he became a pilot, who his father was, what his relationship with his family is like. Um, and it sets up, of course, things that would come later in the series, you know, with uh, the prophecy of the Blackest Night and, you know, uh, atrocities. It's just a really good story. Uh, and obviously, of course, it served as a relative template to the movie. Um, don't judge the movie uh, or don't judge this book based on the movie that begat, that, that came out of it. Um, outside of that, I really can't pinpoint any particular Hal Jordan story. Obviously, of course, I do the, the, the Lantern cast spinoff of Green Lantern, Green Arrow. So I'm going to you know obviously point to the first 10 or 12 issues of that series starting with issue 76 because while you – know, and I never really thought about it until you said it. It does keep Hal in this sort of melancholy state. Uh, all throughout you know the next 10, 10, 15 years of his stories. At the same time, you know it's groundbreaking in comics, both uh, storytelling and comics history. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a can't miss. Uh, and in addition to all of that, I just I, I don't know if I can point out any particular Hal Jordan story. There, the the Hal Jordan stories are are. The great ones are few and far between, but the things that make them great aren't just Hal. It's the supporting cast or what's being added to the mythos or whatever. So it's always hard for me to think of something specific to Hal that I would recommend to other people. Mark, what do you think? You you mentioning it made me remember the fact that how long Rebirth has been now. (laughs) Like Like pretty much getting close to 12 years now since Rebirth started. I think that was the end of 2004. But in that time frame, yes, obviously Rebirth would be an important story. Uh, Chad mentioned the Sinestro Corps War before the Secret Origins in Jeff John's run and Blackest Night 2. Going back, we kind of touched on Emerald Dawn. I think both Emerald Dawn 1 and 2 would be an interesting read for people to get a, especially if you want to compare Hal Jordan in different eras, if you will, or different decades, how they approached Hal Jordan and what made him tick. And usually you, you find stuff in every in every era or in every origin story or time reinvention of Hal Jordan that you like and some things that you don't like. And Emerald Dawn obviously has things that you don't necessarily like too. And Emerald Dawn was supposed to be like his version of Man of Steel or his yes. version of Batman Year One. Yep. You know, it didn't come out right after Crisis. It came out like three or four years later. But it was supposed to be that sort of rejuvenating kickstart of the character's new series by going back to his origin. Right. Yeah, I, again, I said I haven't read it, but I've heard Sean Engel did a podcast about it, and I listened to it, and some of the details, not not crazy about but sorry to jump in there. So what That's else? That's okay. Yeah. It's your show. Jump in all you want. <laughs> so there are things in it, yeah, I, like I kind of alluded to, there are things in it that a lot of people might not like. If you like Hal Jordan now, you might not like then, and vice versa. There's They always tweak aspects of the character. Again, you never really got into Kyle. I think there are things in the Kyle run that are worth looking at, but it really, even related to Hal, obviously a lot of stuff related to with the parallax appearances are worth because they still give you an insight into who Hal Jordan was, even though he's obviously a, a much more unhinged Hal Jordan. But still, the point is <laughs> there's a lot of elements of the real character still in there. So I think like uh, Chad and I did the, we did the Unholy Alliances, the crossover, Silver Surfer, Green Lantern crossover. I think that's a cool piece onto itself because you have four, four really interesting characters in one book, the Kyle Green Lantern, Thanos, Hal as Parallax, and the Silver Surfer himself. So I think that's, that's another story. There are more, but but I don't want to drag it, drag this on any longer for you. 
And I just looked it up. It's uh, actually uh, 29 through 35. So I was close for the Secret Origins. For me, that real sweet spot for Green Lantern is from Rebirth to Sinestro Core War, especially the ongoing series between those. Like, I really like those stories, like when he first goes up against the Manhunters again and he sees Cyborg Superman again, uh, those stories. And one of the things I liked about that time was that was Jeff Johns doing a lot of world building for Hal specifically. He wasn't so much, he wasn't just adding on to new pieces of the history of the Green Lantern Corps with the new books of Oa and the new color core that all of those things that just are spinning out of that. For the first year or two years, it was world building that was central to Hal. It was central to Hal's human cast and Coast City and Ferris aircraft and all those things. And I liked those stories. I liked meeting his new flight partners, Cowgirl. The the things in those are really, really strong stories. So I recommend those if you can find them. And you should be able to find them on trade or digitally pretty easily. So... Um, yeah, I think that is going to be it for this episode. I'm not going to bid you guys adieu yet because we've got another origin to cover. So folks, we're going to take another short break. And after that, Chad and Mark will be back to help me tackle the story you have all been waiting for. (laughs) The origin of Green Lantern's mechanic. (laughs) No, I'm serious. That's, that's what we're, (laughs) so stick around. And when. In 1998, Mark Wade, Brian Augustine, and Barry Kitson began exploring the beginnings of the world's greatest superhero team over an epic 12-issue comic maxi-series. That team was the Justice League of America, and that comic was JLA Year One. In 2016, eight podcasts will come together to cover this series in a single month. That month is JL May. Featuring the Fire and Water Podcast, The Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, The Lantern Cast, Supermates Podcast, The Idlehead of Diabolu, Comic Reflections, and Views from the Long Box. Each podcast will cover one or two issues of JLA Year One, and then coverage will move from show to show. It all starts in the Fire and Water Podcast with issues one and two. JL May, an epic month for an epic series. Available where you find all good podcasts. Everybody is building the big ships and the boats Some are building monuments, others are jotting down notes Everybody is in despair, every girl and boy But when the Eskimo gets here, everybody jump for joy Come all without Come all within You'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn 
Now I like to do just like the rest I like my sugar sweet The garden fumes and making haze It ain't my cup of meat Everybody's just standing round neath the trees Feeding pigeons on a limb But when Quinn the Eskimo gets here Them pigeons will go to him Come all without Come all within You'll not see nothing like the mighty we're back with the origin you've waited all your life to hear, the story of Tom Kalmaku, more affectionately and disgracefully known as Pie Face. <sighs> I can't believe this story wasn't marketed more heavily on the cover. Go figure. <laughs> um, really quick, in case you need to know the publication history for Tom Kalmaku, he appeared one year after Hal Jordan in the pages of Green Lantern issue 2, published in 1960. That very issue, Tom discovered that Hal Jordan is Green Lantern by comparing the way each man punches somebody in the face. Interesting that he saw them both punch somebody in the face in such a short span of time. After that, Tom served as Hal's airplane mechanic and loyal confidant. He appeared in roughly half of the Green Lantern adventures from the 1960s. He dropped out of sight for most of the 1970s, but returned to Green Lantern in the early 1980s. He didn't appear in every issue, but he was a fairly regular fixture of the series until it was cancelled. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Tom Kalmaku became one of the new Guardians that spun out of the Millennium Event. I can only assume that is the reason why he merited an entry in this issue of Secret Origins, which came out halfway through New Guardians... It's worth noting, I think, that according to Mike's Amazing World, Tom only appeared in 10 of the 12 issues of that series. So, Chad, will you tell us the secret origin of Tom Kalmaku? Absolutely. This story, entitled A Piece of the Pie, was written by future GL writer Gerard Jones, penciled by prior GL artist Joe Staten, lettered by Augustin Moss, colored by Tony Tallinn, and edited by the boy editor Mark Wade. Tom Kalmaku sits at his desk, presumably working on new designs for Ferris Air, when suddenly his kids come bursting into the room, evidently quote-unquote helping their mother in the kitchen inspired their mother to then suggest that their father had a story to tell them all of a sudden, out of nowhere. Go figure. All too happy to break open his old GL casebook, Tom smiles as the kids start suggesting their favorite tales, such as that one time Tom was turned into a seagull. And that one time Tom grabbed an antenna and intercepted a Quardian transmission. Tom opts instead to give him his secret origin <laughs> as Hal's best friend and confidant. <laughs> Classy. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I figured I'd give you a plug on your own show as it's happening. <laughs> uh, Tom grew up in a destitute Inuit town in Alaska. As a kid, he showed great aptitude towards mechanics and earned money working on an Air Force base. Money he tried to give his father to help his father and his family. His father instead insisted on pulling his own weight and went off for a while with a white animal trapper named Jimmy Dawes. When he returns, he crazily claims that he and Jimmy discovered a gold mine, and his father waits for Jimmy to return with a crew and his half of the map to the mine, but his father slowly got worse and passed away of alcoholism though Tom softens this information for his children's sake by simply calling it an ailment. 
Upon his death, Tom inherits the map and goes down to Coast City to pick up the trail to find Jimmy and the gold mine, as that information and money will save his family and his town. While there, he picks up a job as a mechanic at Ferris Air, where he meets Hal Jordan, who asks directly if it's okay to call him Pie Face, which then causes the children to interrupt the narrative requesting an Eskimo pie before dinner. Tom then returns to his story after a parental refusal of dessert before dinner by picking up on a moment where Tom is mugged outside a hangar at Ferris Air. Hal stumbles upon the scene and, like any hero would, ring or not, decks the men in spectacular and evidently memorably unique fashion. <laughs> the muggers make off with uh, Tom's half of the map and Hal leaves only to be replaced by the presence of Green Lantern, offering his help. He gets an image of Tom's map half from Tom's mind, and after transferring it to paper, they follow the trail to Alaska just as a plane lands. The plane, surprise, holds the muggers who got the other half of the map from Jimmy in an ill-planned round of poker. GL and Tom make short work of them, mostly GL, and Tom turns over the mind to the town. He then promises to marry Targa, once his girlfriend, uh, once things are settled down and solidified in Coast City. Later, Tom reveals that he knows Hal is Green Lantern based on the fact that the two men use the exact same strange punch. Hal confesses and then declines to mind wipe Tom, a suggestion Tom himself made, as the two are now close friends. As the story ends, Tom's now wife Targa pops into the room saying dinner is ready. As Tom laments about the recent past of both him and Hal, Turger reminds him that his life has turned out very well with healthy kids, a new money-making jet engine produced by Ferris, and his recent involvement with the new Guardians group that came out of Millennium. One might say, in fact, Tom finally got his piece of the pie. With George and Wheezy. <laughs> <laughs> and that ends that story. Oh, man. Now I'm going to use that song. <laughs> I know you should. <laughs> Moving on up! Moving on up! <laughs> okay. Um I guess thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Mark take it away. You can start. Oh god. <laughs> as easily dismissed as this story could be on the surface. Like I mentioned when we talked about uh Hal's origin in, in a really sad way there's a lot more when you look at what they tell you about Tom and his life and where he came from and how everything all relates. You, even with the comical elements in there, it's actually, sadly, a de- probably a deeper story than the one we got about Hal. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that that is what I do. That is what I do like about it because you actually do. It kind of fits the bill of a secret origin, even though he's not a hero, really. I mean, kind of, sort of tying it into the to the New Guardian stuff. But you could learn a lot of things about Tom that you wouldn't have known otherwise, about where he came from, what motivated him, kind of like how he kind of learned his skills or when he learned his skills, what motivated him to learn, things like that. Uh, so that, that part that part I liked. I do think for the most part Tom comes out better than Hal in the story, which I guess maybe isn't surprising. <laughs> So I thought it was I thought it was interesting. It is it is weird. Yeah, we know we have the whole race the whole it's kind of, I I like the fact that even uh Tom references the fact that how even though he doesn't use the actual term political correctness because it wasn't coined quite yet. Mm-hmm. But he but he does the closest thing, you know, he the way he 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 uses that terminology to mention the fact that uh you know, how was never a very uh what did he say? Politic Politically sensitive. That that's it. That's it. Political political sensitivity was hadn't been drummed into him yet. That was yeah. the quote. And then he says, "I kind of liked him better that way." 
And, and the funny thing was, like, that sort of supports the point I was making in the last segment, was that I think, like, the arrogant, cocky hotshot Hal who didn't think about the way people, people think about him was a more fun character. But Speaking of which, this story is written by Gerard Jones, who writes the next the next iteration of Green Lantern, whose first story starts off with Hal going, I need to get my feet back on the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was Jones's third story, I think, at DC Comics. He did the secret origin of Elongated Man. He did the secret origin of Ice Maiden. And then this one. Um, so he was moving on up the chain. <laughs> yeah, sort of. A few things I wanted to mention. Like we said, we never get a secret origin of John Stewart. We never get a secret origin of Aquaman. We never get a secret origin of Wonder Woman. We never get a secret origin of the Silver Age Hawkman and Hawk Girl. We don't get a origin of Red Tornado, the the android one. We don't get a secret origin of Wildcat or Metamorpho or Huntress, or Katana, or Supergirl, or Etrigan, or Ragman, or, Ragman, or <laughs> Orion, or any of the other new gods besides Mr. Miracle. But, we get one for Tom Kalmaku. <laughs> and Maxwell Lord. <laughs> Maxwell Lord. The, and it's... Whew. Do we... Please tell me the last issue of Secret Origins is the secret origin of Snapper Carr. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> I think like the only reason why this story would be relevant, why they would need to tell this story, is because of his connection to the New Guardians. But from this story, what is his connection to the New Guardians? Not a thing. <laughs> they, they say he's connected to them. Do they say how? Nope. <laughs> Does this story talk about the Millennium event? Nope. <laughs> like, it looks like he's retired. This is the secret origin of a guy with a family who, who draws airplanes. Maybe he changes the oil on their car. Like, Jimmy Olsen at least, like, had his own adventures and drank potions that turned him into freaks and stuff like that. <laughs> like, I, I don't know why we needed the origin of somebody's, like, human confidant partner, except for the fact that, okay, he he did become, like, a new guardian, but that's not a part of this story at all. Like, why is this thing here? And, <laughs> like... <sighs> I, I, okay. (laughs) The story is good. Like you said, like there's, it references a whole lot of uh, elements from Green Lantern's history. It's well told. George Jones is a good writer. The the art is fine. But why did the story need to be told? It's also essentially beat for beat from the uh, original Tom Kamaku origin in Mm -hmm. uh, Green Lantern number two. I, I don't, I don't know. Heads up though, there is one minor slash major retcon. Uh, depending on how you look at it. Okay. In the original story, uh, Tom just says his father died of an illness, which is essentially what he tells his kids, but they add in the whole alcoholism factor. Yeah, yeah. Which I think so. we could get that from, infer that from the subtext, but. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't really have other thoughts about this story. I enjoyed it. It was a good story, but at, at the end of it, I was like, Whoa. Why does it exist? Yeah. <laughs> Like all, all, I just kept on thinking, why am I reading this story instead of the origin of Aquaman, the origin of Mira, Aqua Boy, <laughs> uh, Tusky, Tusky? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any other thoughts before we move on? 
Well, um, just because I put in the research. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> by, as well. by all means, get, yeah, get the money worth. The, get, the, the, get, get those extra pages of synopsis out there, Chad. The uh, the story where uh, Tom turns into a seagull is in uh, Green Lantern number seven from the Silver Age, which is also coincidentally the first appearance of Sinestro. Um, in that story, essentially, Hal is having a dream where Tom is asking him for the ability to fly, so he wants to borrow the ring. But Hal's response in the dream is, "Okay, I'll turn you into a bird." The the where, ring then acts. Seven pages earlier, he gave a, a complete stranger with a fanatical obsession with him. He gave that guy a fake ring and just let him fly around to another planet. See that? And that answers your question. He was he was trying to make amends because what he wasn't because it wasn't what what he wasn't doing for the black skin. So he was going to give him a power ring instead. <laughs> I'll screw over my best friend, but instead, here here, random guy, take a power. Now I can feel better about myself. So in the story, uh, Hal's ring, not on, even on his finger, acts to this unconscious dream and turns uh, Tom into a bird. The uh, the one where Tom intercepts a transmission from Quard is in the uh, issue following his first appearance uh, in, in number three. He basically is helping somebody repair their roof or something like that, grabs onto the antenna and suddenly is hearing Quardian transmissions. <laughs> How that works, why it works specifically for Tom, I have no idea. Uh, I didn't bother reading that one. <laughs> but uh, there's that. And then towards the end, we see that he says things like, uh, in, you know, it's kind of sad how things turned out. How leaving Ferris to wander around, we're assuming that's Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Yep. Uh, then me leaving to open that chain of gas stations, no idea. How's head getting all bollocksed up? Based on group <laughs> group messaging on Facebook, we uh, we pretty much narrowed that down. That's probably Green Lantern one fourteen through one sixteen. Yeah, that's what I think it is. But now that you read that aloud, I'm trying to think of why an Inuit Eskimo from Alaska but living in California would come up with the word bollocksed. <laughs> He's a worldly man. Okay? <laughs> yes, naturally. <laughs> He's learned a lot. A lot of people pass through Ferris. Yeah, having run he's, that failing gas station and all. He's he's a representative of the New Guardians, which represents the human race and the future of the planet, okay? He can use the word bollocks. <laughs> okay, we're going to use Cockney British slang then, okay. <laughs> but that's just based on context clues. How the fact that the Gerard Jones stuff didn't start up until the 90s, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure no major head injuries happened during the Action Comics Weekly stuff, so... And the, the, it, he mentions the fact that they hooked up, uh, uh, him and Hal hooked up again, another odd choice of words, uh, at Ferris. So that's... <laughs> oh, more, more imagery than we needed. <laughs> but then what happened, like, when does he... Okay, so he would have left Ferris again. Oh, okay, so yeah, and that was in like the 170s, because that would have been right before Crisis. Right, because that's when she Carol goes through the whole predator thing, and mm-hmm. and guy comes back, and and John Stewart and Kat Matui are in charge of Earth for a while. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, and just by the way, one sixteen is also the story where the battery blows up guy, and all that stuff happens with guy's mental state. Oh yeah. Okay. So there's there's your context for this story. <laughs> I'm sure you guys desperately needed it. <laughs> Mark, any final thoughts on this story? Oh. <laughs> Leave him if that side. If they're Do not, not there, edit out that side. If they're not there, don't reach for him. <laughs> don't strain yourself. Increase the volume on that side. <laughs> 
All I can say is I did like this better than the Hal Jordan origin, and I really shouldn't have, but I did. <laughs> it's a good story. It's, it is. It's a fine it's, little. It's a fine it's little. It's nice. It's compact. It uses. It, it's a good use of space. Yeah. It tells a good story in a very small amount of a small amount of pages. Mm-hmm. Questioning whether it was a story we really needed to know. That's that's another issue. But working on the belief or the assumption that we did need to know that story, then it's a really nicely told story. So I, I was pleasantly surprised that I liked the story as much, and probably more surprised that I didn't like the house story as much. I think the one thing I really would have wanted from this story is if Tom had taken his kids to another planet to fight space bandits and not warned them about the danger <laughs> that, their, that their ring wouldn't protect them. <laughs> that, that's what I felt like I got from the Hal Jordan story that was missing desperately from this one. You know, another thing you get out of this, and, and just to save you some time for, for recommended reading slash, <laughs> slash where the character went from here, is you get a sense of depth here. And no, I'm not reaching. I really am trying to make a point. <laughs> you get a sense of depth here because towards the end of the story, you see Tom is, and he, he, even visually here, especially in this uh, fourth to last panel, he's sad that him and Hal are no longer close. And he's bothered by just, just the fact that they're no longer close and Hal's own mental state and how he sees the world now. Because earlier, like you pointed out, Ryan, he says, you know, I liked him better that way. And earlier he even says uh, something to the uh, – he says, uh, GL and I did have some thrilling adventures once upon a time. Seems like everything la- – lately everything I hear about him is so maudlin. So he's concerned about his friend. He misses his friend. So speaking of recommended reading slash where the character went from here. There's actually an entire trade paperback all about Tom. Uh, So if this story interests you, (laughs) there's that. It's called Green Lantern Legacy, The Last Will and Testament of Hal Jordan. Uh, And it's basically with Tom as the main character slipping into alcoholism. So good pull there. Dealing with the fact that Hal has gone batshit crazy and killed the entire Green Lantern Corps. His close friend, his hero, the confidant, uh, he has completely betrayed everything Tom has known him to be. Uh, Tom has left his family and his wife, uh, not legally, officially, but he's just no longer living with them. Uh, He's drinking all the time. He's a mess. And then this little quote-unquote, and I won't spoil the story, so I'll just say quote-unquote, son of Hal Jordan shows up on his doorstep with a simple note from Hal to Tom, fix it. And there's this whole thing with parallax, and it's it's it, it's it's crazy. Uh, it it's actually a pretty good story. I personally don't like the art, um, but it's actually for a story featured with the main character being Tom Kalmaku. It's actually a pretty good story about how somebody who's essentially a citizen and nothing more in the DC universe deals with all the seriousness stuff that's been going on. You know, just sort of. It has a, a tangential side attachment to that world and how it really affects them. Was so I th- it's actually a really good story, and also on a bigger on a bigger scale too. Just how somebody deals with the, having like someone you're close to, someone you idolize, someone who you just think so highly of, just completely go off the rails, and how that, the trickle down effect of that too. Yeah, but Is we that- still need to do that story, Chad. Sorry, I want to do that episode issue. Okay, well, just before we wrap up, kind of bringing it back to uh, the Green Lantern as a whole, and because this is probably the last time we will talk about the character, there have been a number of people to wear the ring and to go by the name of Green Lantern, 
and I was just wondering if you guys could rank them or give me your top three. Pretty much using any criteria? Uh, I mean, yeah, if you can justify a weird oddball choice, yeah, go ahead. Hal, Hal's number one. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna include Alan Scott. So okay. Alan Scott, I'm going to eliminate just because we're, we're talking. I, to me, we're talking about Green Lantern Corps. So okay. I'm not gonna, yeah, we can do that. That's fine. Okay. So, Cal uh, Jordan, John Stewart, and then I'm going to say Guy. And this isn't based on overall popularity; it's just based on effectiveness. I think as a Green Lantern. Okay. If you if you if you had to get into a fight, who and you needed in a, at the end of the day, who who would you want on your side in that order? <laughs> I, that's how I would go. Right. Uh, for me, uh, uh, my name's Chad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Brad Chokelman, get that right. His <laughs> non de plume. For uh, for me, I, I'm not gonna follow Mark's criteria because I cannot leave out Alan. Okay. Uh, so number one is Alan Scott. Number two is Kyle Rayner. Number three is Hal Jordan. Um, Alan just sheerly because of the amount of potential there is in his storytelling, not just with his power, but with his family, with his rogues gallery, even his ties, you know, later retconned his ties into the actual Green Lantern Corps. So there's that. Kyle, just because he's the everyman, uh, he's somebody, he's the, the Green Lantern I actually identify most with, and Hal, just because... He's how <laughs> he's he's been he's he's a guy who's been through hell and back quite literally actually mm-hmm. well, uh, purgatory. Hell, <laughs> yeah hell and back and you know we were talking about how everything using Tom's words has been you know modeling from the 70s and 80s uh, and into the 90s but you know especially through the the Jeff Johns era of stuff and we keep touting the Jeff Johns era stuff but it's really that good people um, you get a sense of you know he's he's been this embodiment of fear and evil he's been the, the wrath of he's had close ties to you know quote unquote you know him the god you know you know what the deity in the universe uh, he's been just a man he's been a pilot he's, he's been through everything and still comes out this cocky SOB. <laughs> and you, he's, that, he's that cocky SOB like you mentioned, Ryan, earlier. You, you just you, – you, you cannot help but love. You know, there are a lot of characters in various media that are just cocky assholes and you just want to punch them in the face. But how you just want to follow him for the journey. Mm-hmm. So you, 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 I got to respect you know, a character that is, makes me actually care about him acting like that and not want to punch him in the face. <laughs> It's one of the... I don't want to talk about the Green Lantern movie. I mean, that could be a whole other thing. And I, I've made the comparison to Maverick from Top Gun earlier in this episode, but that was my one takeaway from the movie when I left. I was like, I think somebody at Warner Brothers, one of the producers, one of the suits, just asked the writers, or the like, okay, who is Hal Jordan? And they said, he's like Maverick from Top Gun. And what the writer, what the creative person meant was Maverick from the beginning of Top Gun. The Maverick that goes back after Cougar, even when his plane is out of fuel. But what the producer, what the suit heard, the studio executive heard, was Maverick from the end of Top Gun, who's like in front of a jukebox crying because Goose died, who's lost his edge. And and that's how we get a movie that feels like it's more of a Peter Parker sob story superhero rather than what it should have been. But... Um, back to my list. If we're including Alan Scott, then my list would be Hal Jordan, Alan Scott, and then John Stewart. 
if like Mark, if I'm not including Alan and I'm just going with like the the Green Lantern core characters, it would be Hal, John, and then it'd probably be like a five way tie between a bunch of the aliens that I really <laughs> like to see. It would be Kilowog, Kat Matui, Tomar Ray, some of those others. Now you got two more. I want to hear two more alien Green Lantern names out of you. I want to know that you know these. Um, what is the fish guy with the bulb on his is Nautilus or something? Oh yeah, I, yeah, I know who you mean. Um, Chip, naturally Chip. Uh, Buzzed, uh, bizzed, bizzed. <laughs> <laughs> Mogo, maybe. Oh, Mogo. Why Mogo doesn't socialize though, so you can't include him in a list. Bazinga. <sighs> <sighs> Salak, who else can I come up with? The the chlorophyll tree guy from the Alan Moore story. Metaphil. 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 Yes. Seriously, that's his name. <laughs> well, guys, thank you very much for being on this episode of Secret Origins Podcast. Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you about Green Lantern or anybody else? Best place to find us is lanterncast.com, our website. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, GLCast. You can use us to locate on. Pretty much, almost any anywhere in the, anywhere in social media, you pretty much can use that. Uh, we're on iTunes and Stitcher. You can download our new episodes there. Uh, our voicemail is seven zero eight Lantern. So if you want to leave us a voicemail, and our email is lanterncast at gmail dot com. If you have any questions or anything else you'd like to know about our show. I personally will be starting an Action Comics Weekly podcast. Uh, I was hoping to get it done uh, last month, but. I'm not going to bore you. It, it, it's, it's, it is coming, people. It's just a matter of logistics. Um, so it is coming. It'll be bi-weekly. You can find the page already set up on the on Facebook, so just look up the Action Comics Weekly podcast. There's a WordPress set up for it. Not exactly sure if I'll be using that. But I am already about – how many stories are in there in that first one? Five? Yeah, so I'm about four-fifths of the way done with the first three episodes. Uh, so – that's coming relatively soon. I cannot give you a date right now. And I've also run a blog about Ragman, which has kind of been put slightly on the back burner. But there is stuff in the works coming up. So that is thesuitofsouls.blogspot.com. And the one and one thing I, I should mention, uh, Jim Ford, one of the founders of the Lantern Cast, before he, they handed the baton to Chad and I, uh, he and I have a toy podcast, the greatest toy podcast. Not surprisingly, greatesttoypodcast.com. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So we do a weekly show and we talk about what's what's newly arriving in stores, what's about to come out, what's available for pre-orders, and it's it's pretty. If you if you're a toy collector, it's a pretty interesting show. You certainly should give it a listen. Yeah, I've heard the first episode. I liked it. It was fun. Thank you. So, all right, guys. One more time. Thank you very much for being part of the show. Listeners, do not go away because after this break, I will be back with the secret origin of Poison Ivy. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for our podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. 
So join us, Cindy and Chris Franklin, for the Supermates, the Husband and Wife Geekcast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. You know, Chad, Mark, and I talked about Green Lantern for two hours on this session, and a couple of days before that, we talked about the final night miniseries for a future episode of the Lantern cast. And in all of that time, I forgot to mention what might be my favorite Green Lantern moment in a comic. It's from the beginning of Jeff Johns' run, issue three, I think. Hal Jordan is fighting the newest version of the Manhunter robots, and the new Manhunter has an energy battery built into its head, so as Green Lantern is fighting this thing, it actually drains his ring's charge to the point where he's out of juice. Then the Manhunter goes flying off to the newly resurrected Coast City where it's about to self-destruct, destroying the city and everyone there. You know, again... Hal's ring is drained. He has no power, but he refuses to quit. He gets in his jet and flies after the Manhunter. When the robot attacks his fighter, he ejects and then ditches the parachute so he can free-fall directly into the robot. As he's falling, he recites the Oath of Oa, and just as he tackles the Manhunter in midair, he jams his ring into the battery in its head, fully recharging him and giving him the powers of Green Lantern back. It's probably the coolest action scene I've ever read in a Green Lantern comic. Maybe any comic. And it told me everything I needed to know about Hal Jordan and what it means for him to be without fear. Okay, time for Poison Ivy. Yeah, Spider-Man and Freeze in full effect. I'm ready. You ready, dude? I'm ready, Slick, are you? Oh, yeah. Take it down. Girl, I must warn you. I sense something strange in my mind. Yo, situation is. Let's cure it, cause we're running out of time. with the origin of Batman's dangerously beautiful villain, Poison Ivy. And joining me for this story are the Supermates themselves, each a bit of an exotic temptress in his or her own right, Chris and Cindy Franklin. First, Chris, welcome back to the show. Ah, about damn time. Oh, no, wait, I was on the JLA show. Never mind. Okay. You cannot <laughs> complain about how you were used on this show when you started off with Superman and Batman. I keep telling <laughs> And much more importantly, Cindy, welcome to the show for the first real time. 
Thank you so much. Uh, it is great having you both on the show together. You guys had me on Supermates last year where we talked about Batman's villains on the animated series. And right. when we talked about Poison Ivy, I just knew that I had to have you both on the show to cover this episode. Cindy, since you're new to the show, you get this question first. How and okay. when did you discover Poison Ivy? Honestly, I mean, I was aware of her as a character in the Batman universe, of course. But as far as actual exposure and delving into it, it was really with the Batman animated series. And that made me want to seek out the comic-related material from that. But the animated series is what really drew me into the character. Again, as anybody who's ever listened to us knows, I'm a huge Bruce Timm fan. Love his take on the characters. And then looking in, you know, and I've read books featuring her, of course, since then. But as far as my initial exposure, it was the animated series. Chris, what about you? I think I first met Poison Ivy. I think it was Batman number 339, which was in uh, September 1981. The plot of that one was uh, she used her seductive kiss to enthrall Bruce Wayne into giving her control of the Wayne Foundation. Uh, I think it was a Jerry Conway story. And uh, not too long after that, there was a storyline a few years later in, uh, I think it was Batman 367 and Detective 534, in January 1984, where she fought Batman in the pre-Robin Jason Todd. He was in a Robin-like costume from Detective 526, but he was not Robin because Dick was still Robin. But it always sticks out in my mind because in that story, Batman's getting attacked by Ivy's plant monsters, and he yells out for Robin. (laughs) And and at the end of this storyline, Jason's like, we got to come up with something we got to call me something. So that starts while they're in the cave throwing out names like Blue Jay and Batman and Guano. They literally <laughs> say Batman and Guano. And uh, the next issue of Batman, that's where Dick walks in with the costume and solves their problem for him by giving Jason the Robin mantle. So I, that, that always just sticks in my head, that storyline with Poison Ivy, because of that. I can't imagine they didn't suggest Red Hood back then. But. <laughs> <laughs> or the Guardian, like from the Toll House Cookies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the uh, no, what protector was the protector, yeah, the protector, yeah, yeah. the drug, the drug comic. Yes, yeah, 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 that's gotcha. What it was. yeah, that's what gotcha, it was. yeah, yeah. I knew that I had read her in some comics in the early '90s. I don't remember what her appearance was, but it would have been before Nightfall. But then I, fir- I think, like Cindy, my first real exposure to her, where I cared about her and was mm-hmm. interested in her, was in the animated series. Um, And she was in one of the early episodes. I think it was like the second week that the show was on was her first appearance. Um, Right. Very, very early on. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think just the fact that she was new, the fact that she was a Batman villain who I may have known of, but I just I didn't really know her. So the novelty of that, because most of his rogues I knew through the comics, but a lot of them was from repeats of the Adam West series. And Poison Ivy did not make an appearance in that one to the loss of all of us getting in Margaret. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I said like there was like a whole campaign. Like if she'd been on the show, Anne Margaret would have been the perfect casting. And I've seen yeah, that. Like, Mike Allred has said uh, recently he was on the Batcave podcast, mm-hmm. and he said on the covers of the Batman '66 comic when they had Poison Ivy, he drew Anne Margaret. So <laughs> yeah, I've seen like a bunch of like photoshopped things that did that. I saw yeah, one, mock-ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw one that looked very much like Bruce Tim style. It wasn't Bruce Tim; it was another artist, but it was in that same style. But it had kind of that likeness, and it was good. If that would have happened, that would have been something really cool. So. Oh, yeah. Getting into Poison Ow. Ivy. <laughs> we, we were waiting for that to happen, folks. 
According to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, Poison Ivy only appeared in 28 comics before this story in Secret Origins. Her first appearance was in the story Beware of Poison Ivy in Batman issue 181, published in 1966, the same year that the Batman television series premiered. Alas, as we just said, Poison Ivy never appeared on the show. Her second appearance, however, Batman 183, did feature a cover with Batman sitting down watching his own TV show. So, you know, that's something. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the 1970s, Ivy appeared in Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane 115 and 116, as well as scattered issues of Super Friends, Secret Society of Supervillains, the Wonder Woman feature of World's Finest 251 and 252, and Justice League of America, where she served as part of the Injustice Gang. She also popped up in eight or nine issues of Batman and Detective Comics. Her last appearance prior to this story was a minor role in Swamp Thing Annual Number 4. While she may have missed out on Batmania in the 60s, Poison Ivy came back strong in the 1990s, appearing in numerous episodes of Batman the Animated Series. She even graced the big screen in 1997's Batman and Robin, played by Uma Thurman. She's sick, folks. That wasn't just her natural reaction to hearing about that movie. Yes, it was. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. In the comics, she took on a slightly more prominent role in the light of the Gotham earthquake and the events of No Man's Land, and a slightly less human appearance as her skin turned green for a while. In the last couple of years, Poison Ivy has appeared in numerous books connected to the Batman family. She was one of the stars of Gotham City Sirens. She appeared in the Harley Quinn comic book. She started off in the New 52 Birds of Prey. And most recently, so recent it's current, in fact, as we record this, she is starring in a limited series called Poison Ivy, Cycle of Life and Death. Uh, Anything else? Any major storylines or appearances that I didn't mention? Uh, no, the, the only DC thing... DC Bombshells. Yeah, yeah, she's in the DC Bombshell series. Uh, but uh, the, the only thing that I found odd looking over her history is she was almost a utility supervillain than a Batman villain after her, like, first two appearances. Yeah. You know, because she appeared in so, like like you said, Lois Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, she appeared in Wonder Woman's feature. Where the Wonder Woman feature in World's Finest is where she got her first origin, which is touched upon in this story. So, I mean, it was it was really odd looking. It's like, you know, she's thought of as a Batman villain. And obviously after, you know, the animated series, she was locked in. But she kind of became one of those DC villains that just popped up wherever they needed a villain. You know? Right. So, especially with her connection to like the teams, the Secret Society of Supervillains, the Injustice Gang. And you're right. I noticed that, too. It's like, boy, you know, her first couple of princes were in Batman. But after that, she floated around and fought a bunch of different people. And Maybe she could have had a greater success outside of Batman's realm. She's an odd choice for a Batman villain. She doesn't kind of fit the same mold as the others. She's a little bit supernatural, a little bit extraordinary with her powers, depending on how that's going. It's it's similar to like a Mr. Freeze, where you get them both in a movie of that sort. <laughs> that, and, you know, Cindy, cue your natural reaction to Batman and Robin again. <laughs> But, like, in a Christopher Nolan type of Batman movie, you're not going to see Mr. Freeze, and you're probably not going to see Poison Ivy. Or if you do, she's just going to be an assassin who uses poisons. She'd be right. um, something like, uh, who's the who's the baby mama for Speedy's kid? Oh, Cheshire. Cheshire, yeah. Yeah, Cheshire, yeah. 
she remind it's in a way she almost kind of reminds me of Gorilla Grodd, and Gorilla Grodd is one of my favorite Flash villains. He actually he is my favorite Flash villain, but he's also one of those characters where it's like, why is he just a Flash villain? Why isn't mm-hmm. Gorilla Grodd like a foe for the entire Justice League or Superman? He certainly got the capability for that. Right. Yeah. So. Well, it's you know with Poison Ivy and then this story, this story seems to kind of be around right around the same time that they kind of changed her up, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that. But yeah. you know there was like a gradual evolution of just being you know that she had lipstick that could mesmerize people or poison them, and she was immune to poisons, to all of a sudden you know being like a female swamp thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly 100% sure, but it's around the time of this story that that changeover happens. And uh, that put her in a whole different demographic of DC villains, really. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And it just occurred to me, this is one of the first villain origins in the series. Secret mm-hmm. And I think the one that preceded it was the origin of the Floronic Man. Yeah. Mm. I think those are the first two villains to get stories in this series. And... Why these did like what was the connection? They didn't Swamp Thing didn't get an origin in this series. <laughs> but Poison Ivy and Floronic Man did. So anyway. I guess everything else we can talk about after the story. So let's let's not keep our listeners in any more suspense. Are you two ready to tell everybody the secret origin of Poison Ivy? Okay, the title of the story is Pavane or Pavon, however you want to pronounce it. Written by Neil Gaiman. Yes, Neil Gaiman. Illustrated by Mark Buckingham, lettered by Augustin Moss. Colored by Nancy Houlihan, edited by Mark Wade, Poison Ivy, created by Bob Kaniger. As we open our story, Inspector Stewart watches a female prisoner through a security monitor. After three days, hmm, took a while there, of endless observation, he notes that you can turn down the sound, but you can't turn off the picture. Stewart asks to see the prisoner, a woman named Isley. The guard, a woman named Paula, takes him past the whispers and crude comments of other female inmates. Paula warns Stewart that if those women could rattle him, he'd better watch out for Poison Ivy. Ivy is seated in the shadows of her cell, but soon beams to life when she sees she has a visitor. Stewart quickly loses his professional demeanor in Isley's smile and the overpowering smell of flowers surrounding her. He attempts to regain his composure by rattling off the lie he and his superiors have fabricated. How is it to talk to Ivy, go over her files, and possibly make recommendations concerning parole? He thinks about what he's really there for, to ascertain whether Poison Ivy is a suitable candidate for Task Force X, a.k.a. the Suicide Squad. From their first session, Stuart learns that Ivy's true name is Pamela Lillian Isley, not Lillian Rose, despite some erroneous files. Despite this, she insists on being called Ivy. Their meeting is interrupted by a call from the warden, and Stuart is forced to leave. Before he goes, Ivy blows him a kiss, which Paula notes. She comments on how Ivy has already managed to enthrall him and also sneaks in a request for a date. Later, at an all-night diner, Stuart can think of nothing but Ivy, particularly her undressing. As he drinks coffee with Paula, he lies about his background and asks even more questions about Ivy, much to her chagrin. She relates how Ivy had been in and out of prison multiple times and how Batman has apprehended her and brought her back. She warns Stuart that Ivy is dangerous, whether she's a friend, lover, or enemy. She likens her to the weed she's named after. You can never get rid of her. Upon his return to the prison, Stuart obsessively watches Ivy through the night until he can see her in person the next morning. On this day, Ivy relates her origins, how she was the only child of a wealthy Seattle family and an odd, ugly child at that, how her obsession with boys and plants began at a very early age. 
She always wanted to be a botanist, or maybe a rock star, a model, or a movie star at different points. Stewart asks why the obsession with flowers, which Ivy points out, if no one will bring you flowers, you have to grow your own. Ivy laughingly refutes the files that claim a Frenchman named Legrand persuaded her to steal some rare Egyptian poison herbs for him, herbs which he then fed to her and made her immune to all toxins. She didn't believe anyone would actually believe those old stories. Instead, she tells of how she studied under Jason Woodrow before he began his criminal career as the Floronic Man. When Woodrow left, she turned her attention to a new obsession, Batman. When the Dark Knight is mentioned, Stuart sees another side to the woman he desires, and it frightens him. Ivy tells of how she began her costume career trying to attract Batman's attention. Instead, her criminal activities led to her incarceration. Stuart comments that this led her to crime, but Ivy counters that it's power she's after, that money is power, sex is power. When she remembers she's talking to a prison official, Ivy puts her criminal desires in the past tense, feigning her ways have changed. After they part, Stuart still can't get Ivy off his mind. Despite the insistent calls from Task Force X asking for results, despite the call to his wife and two kids who want to know when Daddy's coming home, despite his adulterous encounter with Paula in his hotel room that night, with her laying next to him, he wakes from a dream screaming Ivy's name. Stuart is aware of how entangled he is becoming in Ivy's vines, yet the next day he pulls rank and asks to walk with her in the courtyard despite the warden's protest. Ivy is, of course, elated. Outside, with guards unseen over a ridge, they walk and talk. Stuart asks, why, Poison Ivy, why weed? She answers, no plant is a weed, just plants that humans believe are growing in the wrong place. Ivy asks if Stuart can really get her out of prison. She insists that she must get out of that room as she touches his hand. Stuart is overcome, feeling lightheaded. He begins to tell her how he feels about her but instead finds himself asking her, What are you? As she lays in the rapidly growing grass, Ivy tells him, She is a genius who can make plants act like animals and turn animals into plants. She tells him that Woodrow killed her with his experiments, killed Pamela Isley, and gave birth to Poison Ivy. That's when Stuart realizes his hand is burning up. Stuart is soon held tight by the growing grass. Ivy hovers over him, her formerly benign face now a frightening visage, as she claims that all the plants are her children and she must get out. As Stuart yells for the guards, Ivy spews madness about Mother Nature, whispering that she can take whatever she wants because she is Poison Ivy. As the guards approach, she kisses Stuart on the cheek. She asks that he doesn't forget her. With a burning hand and itching face, Stuart watches the guards take her away. Back inside, he passes an admonishing Paula who warns him, He'll soon know the full effects of his encounter with Ivy. Stuart vomits, then notices the marks Ivy's kiss left on his face. He worries about what his wife will think. On the monitor, Ivy begs Stuart to help her get out. As he turns down the volume, Stuart writes down his recommendations for the prisoner. Relocation to Arkham Asylum. He leaves the room, Ivy's face pressed into the monitor. You can turn down the sound, but you can't turn off the picture. All right. Thank you very much. What do we think about the story? Cindy, what were your thoughts? My thoughts were is that Stuart is aptly named. He reminds me of Stuart from the Big Bang Theory because he's a moron. (laughs) Who any woman can get over. Um, He is cheating on his wife. Paula is a dimwit who takes a man to bed, A, who's married, and B, is obviously panting after Poison Abbey. Oh, hey, here, come on, take my goodies, that's fine. 
you know. And she's going to shout, you know, he shouts out her name in his sleep after they've done the deed, and apparently that's okay. She still sees him the next day. <laughs> and I hope that his itch travels farther south <laughs> and makes it fall off. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so Cindy loved it, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like the story. I, I think it's uh, – I just find it really interesting in this time period that you would have such an unlikable protagonist in a mainstream comic because there's really nothing to like about Stuart. I mean no. he's not good at his job because – He's bumbling. He, he's read Ivy's file. He knows what her whole modus operandi is that she you know, enslaves men's minds with her sexuality and her toxic powers and everything. And what's the idiot do? He gets obsessed with her before he even meets her. I mean, he's a creeper. <laughs> he watches her for three days. Right, yeah, he's a creeper. He's a voyeur to begin with. And then when he meets her, he just totally, you know, loses himself to her. And, you know, like Cindy pointed out, not only does he have a wife, he's got kids. So he's cheating on his wife and his kids, which is... Which is even worse, because, I mean, a man that will cheat on his wife is one despicable kind of evil... A man that will cheat on his kids is despicable evil that needs to be have things chopped off, removed, and fed to him. <laughs> there you go. And then, I mean, Ivy, you know, even though Ivy's clearly wackadoo, you're kind of rooting for, uh, no pun intended, rooting for her, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, as the story goes along. It's like, yeah, give it to this guy, you know. Oh, he deserves it. He's asking for it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he's got everything that's coming to him, you know. So I, I just, I, I hope so. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, it just, it kind of, it's like, yeah, this is from, you know, 19, this is from 1988, almost 89. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but this has a very, it does have that very pre vertigo feel to it because it's Neil Gaiman. So it is. And actually, I, I was just looking up, according to Mike's Amazing World, this was only the second thing that he did for DC. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, he had an established career before that, but yeah, this was only his second DC work. And Mark Buckingham had only done a few books before this one too. Um, right, I think just a, like a half a dozen issues of Hellblazer. Right, yeah. So they they both, you know, they of course they both went on to. Uh, Buckingham worked on Sandman here and there as well, and uh, but yes, this is definitely this is definitely pre Vertigo, and I think the thing that Gaiman had worked on before this the same month was Black Orchid, which yeah, this is yeah. into yeah because because Poison Ivy as a part in the Black Orchid miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was obviously a tie into that. And the, the word that we weren't exactly sure how to pronounce, uh, just in case anybody needs to know, Pavane or Pavon means a stately dance in slow double time, popular in 16th and 17th centuries, and performed in elaborate clothing. Or a piece of music for the Pavane or Pavon. For that so, such dance, yeah. yeah. For that kind of dance. So this is the, this is the dance they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, I mean, Stuart, as we said... He if is he, obviously not leading that this, dance. Yeah, this is... Yeah. Well, that's... It was an interesting... He's an interesting character, and you're right, yeah, he, he is kind of an idiot. And I was surprised a little bit that he seems to be kind of awkward around women at first. And he, he's really kind of... He seems a little insecure and unsure of himself right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. with this type of story... I almost would have imagined he would be more arrogant. He would be more cocky. Like, he would go into that room knowing that he's a man and he can get Poison Ivy to tell him whatever he wants to know. And then I mean, the, reverse, job, the reveal of that is seeing him brought down by her. Mm-hmm. I mean, for him to be doing the job he's doing, you'd think that he would be more of a smooth operator. I almost wonder if he's not the first layer that they send in 
to see if they can rattle him, and then they're really going to send the real agent later. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, because yeah. he does not seem like he has not chosen a good life choice for himself. <laughs> He's The task force SX sent him in, but really Paul is the person that's there evaluating if, <laughs> if, if Poison Ivy's fit for the Suicide Squad. Maybe. All right, let's and see how Bronze Tiger fares. <laughs> yeah, let's send, yeah, let's send Bronze Tiger. Let's send Deadshot in. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's. I think it's interesting to think almost every Batman villain is as has now been portrayed as psychotic or having some mental disorder, so they're all in Arkham Asylum. But this was coming out of a time when just really the Joker and Two Face and some of the really extreme villains were at Arkham. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in Batman number four hundred, which is like the last pre-crisis Batman story, really, um, Ivy's one of the ones that's broken out of Gotham Penitentiary. She's not at Arkham. Yeah. So, you know, this he's recommending her to Arkham. So that kind of sets her up as, you know, one of the characters you assume are always going to be at Arkham, which I don't even know if there's any left that aren't in Arkham at, at this point. But it's interesting to, to see, you know, like we said, Ivy, before this, she didn't seem to have this. And they don't really have the ecological agenda that they add to her later. Mm-hmm. She just seemed that was more her shtick, that she was immune to toxins and that she you know, had lipstick and things that could control men. And she did begin experimenting with, like, making men into plant creatures and things like that. But as far as, like, actually being able to go out into a field of grass and be able to, like, entangle somebody in it like she does Stuart, I think that's something fairly new here. Uh, I don't know when exactly that kicked in. It might be right here. I'm not really sure because, again, you know, Ivy's one of those characters. Like, if you look at her Who's Who entry, that's not in her power set at all. Her old Who's Who entry from the first series. Uh-huh. Uh, so this is, you know, it's it's just interesting. I always find it interesting. Well, when do these characters change? You know, and it's, I think, Gaiman took the opportunity to not only debunk the origin that Jerry Conway had written in, in World's Finest 252 with Legrand and the Egyptian herbs and all that stuff, but he gave her a power boost, too. Or it may come from that Swamp Thing annual, which... I think I read that years ago, but I don't have it. And I, like you said, I think her part's pretty small, but I know it involves Batman trying to find Jason Woodrow, the Floronic Man, or something. So, And connecting them, if this connection is first made here, really, the, the, as far as the origin, that's adapted in Batman and Robin. <laughs> yes, it is. And actually, that was going to be because this was another case where I was like, well, this is a story that happens to have her origin in it. But it's not really her origin story. I mean, her background, her life history is encapsulated in like two pages that have like three panels in them. Mm-hmm. Whereas the rest of it is just this uh, like this little dance, as you said, this courtly dance between her and this guy that she's trying to seduce to get her to, to out of out of jail. Mm-hmm. But like even still, she just kind of mentions she's like, yeah, Woodrow. You know, he was the one who kind of gave me these uh, these experiments. And later on, she's like, Woodrow's experiments killed Isley. That's not who I am anymore. And in later versions of her story, they make that a lot more dramatic and a lot more violent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of built up what her power set is and her sort of, you know, her vendetta against men and things like that. So as this still felt like it was only just one part of the Poison Ivy that we would eventually get. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is definitely, 
Ivy in a state of flux, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, this. I mean, they do a lot more with her, but I think, you know, this was at a time when a lot of the, you know, the Batman villains, they didn't, I mean, you had the characters like the Joker and, and Two-Face that had a little more psychological depth to them, but I mean, really, the killing joke gets more into the Joker's psyche than any story before it. Right. And, uh, I mean, so you're really starting to, this is, this is when they're starting to take a look at these characters and kind of peel back you know what's what's behind them what was their beyond what's their just their origin but what caused them to to become what they are they're not just the villain of the week and kind of putting her in and i mean she's you know because Stewart's such a unlikable bumbling moron <laughs> she kind of becomes the protagonist of the story in a way even though he's the narrator you know but it, it, this is just a really interesting story i think the panel layout that that buckingham uses it's He's using that nine-panel grid through a good chunk of it. Uh-huh. It feels very claustrophobic, which you know works because they're in a prison and she wants out. I did think it was kind of interesting that I don't think a traditional like superhero quote unquote artist would have worked as well with this story, but his Ivy isn't like overly attractive the way he draws her. And we're, we've gotten used to Ivy just being this yeah. sex pot. And she's kind of girl next door at best. And then in some panels, when she's really pouring it on, she's just frightening looking. Mm. You know, the when he mentions Batman, the, 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 the little shot of her furrowed brow, I mean, she looks demonic. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I, I thought that was... Uh, that was interesting. Also, again, as part of that state of flux thing, they show a panel that's recreated uh, from Batman 181. I yep. mean, Buckingham's drawing straight off of Sheldon Maldoff, who really wasn't Bob Kane, kids. It was Sheldon Maldoff. <laughs> uh, and, and, no, and, it always says Bob Kane. Therefore, it has to be Bob Kane and only Bob Kane. That's what it says. <laughs> Why does Bob Kane's artwork sometimes look like Dick Sprang and sometimes look like Sheldon Baldoff? I don't understand. But none of it's him. Because none of it's him. Very not since like the mid '40s. But you know, they're still post-crisis at this point. They're still trying to link, even if they're changing the backstory. They're still trying to link it up to the actual published comics as best they can. Yeah. Uh, and that'll soon eventually be abandoned. You know, like there's a Shadow of the Bat annual when they did the year one uh, stunt uh, in all the annuals that year where Bat- retells Batman's first encounter with Poison Ivy. And it's a completely different story. Mm. It's it's not adapting Batman 181. Uh, one for one because Robin because Robin's not there because in post crisis continuity Robin was not there to meet any of the <laughs> Batman villains the first time <laughs> which I, I was like come on he had to be around for somebody but well hey in the continuity of the Gotham TV show Batman's not there to meet the villains for the first time so. <laughs> which Ivy's part of that show too you yes, know she's- we. Yeah, you know, which I haven't been following that show, so I can't say a whole lot about it, but I did see her in the early episodes that I watched. So, and I think it's the Jason Woodrow thing. I mean, you know, DC, you know, loves to comics, comic writers love to connect characters to other characters. And, and I mean, me and Cindy cover Starman by James Robinson, who obviously is, is the latter day Roy Thomas, who loves to connect everything to everything. And uh, and Woodrow, of course, works. But I think part of that is because that Woodrow was used in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And everybody's still all aglow for Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, even though he's not on the book at this point. And, you know, they used, that's why they used him in Millennium and why he was put in the New Guardians. 
Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, they hitched Poison Ivy to that pre-Vertigo world through Woodrow. And that way she was, you know, go into the Black Orchid series. And, and uh, I, I will point out that I think in the one panel you see Jason Woodrow, he looks like a young Christopher Lee. <laughs> I don't know if that's intentional, but he looks like a young Christopher Lee. <laughs> I see it. Bottom of page seven, yeah. Yep, and if you can get Christopher Lee in a comic book, why wouldn't you? You know. <laughs> so, so. And then the next page on uh, the top of page eight, I just love that when she's got her, you know, Batman fan wall with all the posters and the pictures and the T-shirts. The uh, the last page from Batman Year One, it's up on a poster, but it says Amazing Heroes. Yeah, which was Mark Wade worked for Amazing mm-hmm. Heroes before he came to DC. So mm-hmm. that was kind of an in joke there. And you got a yeah. Dick Sprang, Batman and Robin. And yeah. later on in 1989, everyone's wall would look like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Uh, Cindy, other thoughts, final thoughts about the story? Paula, poor self esteem. I mean, I don't know. I think she kind of slept with Stuart because Stuart wanted to sleep with Ivy, and she probably wanted to sleep with Ivy too. And there's some weird mood going on there. And, you know, Stuart hey. hope it falls off. So, you know. I, I, I wonder if you know. I think she was put off by the fact that Ivy was that all he could think about was Ivy. But at the same time, she knew he was into Ivy. And didn't have any problems taking care of, you know, his desires for Ivy. You know what I'm saying? I know. I know. <laughs> so there's some very complex things going on, especially for a 1988 newsstand DC comic book. You know? <laughs> and actually, I really like her line at the end when she tells him he'll find out the full extent of what Ivy did to him later. And we see him and he's got the lipstick mark on his, on his cheek. And he says he <laughs> hopes he can hide it from his wife. I think that's probably their concession that this is really about like symbolically getting an STD from this affair and it will eventually ruin his, his relationship and his marriage, even though they're not going to come out and say it as bluntly as that. They're just going to leave the visual image of the lipstick print on his cheek. I, I was kind of, when I was doing some research on this, I really haven't kept up with any of the New 52 origins, but Ivy's new origin, did you know about that? It's it's quite a bit more grisly than, than this version. Uh, she had a skin condition that kept her indoors most of the time, uh, where she was forced to witness her father constantly beating on her mother. When he brought flowers to make up for his abuse, that's where Ivy learned that plants can be used to manipulate people. Uh, which is, you know, kind of poetic. Unfortunately, her father eventually beat her mother to death, and he buried her in the garden. <laughs> so uh, later, Ivy visited her father in prison after she had the toxic kiss and everything, and kissed him, and then he was found dead of heart failure the next day. So there you go. So a lot more, you know, one thing I do like back then in this time period not everybody had to have that tragic backstory, you know? Yeah. There wasn't that one definable thing that pushed them over. You know, obviously when Ivy was a kid here, she had very low self-esteem. She right. was oversexed at a young age, right, you know? Right. She, I mean, she says that. And, you know, she didn't but have... she a, had a relatively privileged childhood. Right, but she know. just, you know, she was unhappy because of that, and she got into plants and then Woodrow. So it wasn't, it was more of a natural... Evolution, which is, I think is a more natural thing that happens. It's a more believable way, but it's not as dramatic. You know, right. this new 52 origin is more dramatic. But I think 
really, as you know, people that kind of go down the wrong path, it's not the one thing that does it to them usually. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's the flip side of, well, Barry Allen's mother now had to be murdered for him to be the flash when before he just did it because, Hey, he was a good guy and he was a cop, you know? So he used his powers to be a good guy, you know? Yeah. I, I think I'm more okay with it in the sense that her shtick, her gimmick, beyond just the plants, it's the seductiveness. It is the outward appearance of beauty, but really it's the thorn connected to the rose. It's that she will betray you. And she uses her beauty, she uses her sexuality for her power, for her own empowerment, and to cause harm to others. So with that state of mind and that kind of idea behind her, I am okay with giving her more of that dark past, of some sort of traumatic event, to one degree or another. It's not necessary, but it also doesn't bother me to find out that she might have been victimized or something in her past, and that would have led to her taking on this particularly violent and and vengeful, I guess, kind of career path. Yeah, I think it. I think it works. It's just kind of a sign of the times, yeah. you know, how things have changed since 1988. So, right. <laughs> I like the story. I said it's not so much of a Poison Ivy origin story. It's just a story with her or about her that happens to contain her origin. But right, right. that being said, I definitely know who she is by the end of the story. And, mm-hmm. I mean, Gaiman doesn't leave <laughs> – there's no doubt. And, and that's the big question that keeps being asked. Who is she? Who are you, Ivy? And she makes it pretty clear. So, yep she she comes out and tells him who she is, <laughs> whether he wants to hear it or not. At the says, end, well, I mean, you really have to wonder. I mean, she wanted to get Batman's attention. Well, she could have tried to be a costume hero trying to help, but she went the path of I'm going to attract him with crime. Right. Well, so, in, her, you know. in her first story, she turns in like three rival female criminals that didn't appear again until Neil Gaiman used them. I'm yeah. not Neil Gaiman, but Grant Morrison used them. Yeah. Uh, so because Grant Morrison used everything anybody ever abandoned. So. Uh, in Batman. Yeah. One of those women had fishnets. Yes, she did. I'm just saying. <laughs> she going to be on your show? It's Absolutely. <laughs> I don't even remember which one. I think it was a spider gimmick thing. but Yeah, yeah I think so, yeah. yeah. She kind of looked like the old, uh, the original version of Black Widow from Marvel. She uh-huh. kind of reminds yeah, me it, of Yeah, it's very much like that uh, that look. So, <laughs> Final thoughts on this story? I, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's one of the better... Being Neil Gaiman, not surprisingly, it's more of the uh, literate in the book that it's that it just feels more like a short story from a short fiction collection. You know, uh, there's a tinge of just a tinge of horror because she's so out there Matters. because of her powers. Yeah. And because it's in a prison and everything. So I, I do think I think it stands out. I mean, you know, I, I still haven't reread this in a long time, but I remember just about every beat of it. So it left an impression on me. And I bought this one off the stands when it came out. So, oh, and the cover, I think the covers, uh, you know, it's interesting because it's hard to imagine that Hal, he looks so kind of uninterested. Uh, you know, I guess because, you know, Hal of the 80s, uh, if you weren't a, you know, a 16 year old girl made to look older, he wasn't interested in him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, that's creepy, guys. There's, you, can, you can try to explain it away all you want. But Arisia is just wrong. I'm sorry. She was cute, but no, wrong. <laughs> uh, 
didn't even come up when we covered his story the last <laughs> segment. But. Sorry, sorry. <sighs> I mean, I love I love Hal as Green Lantern. I love yeah. Green Lantern, but you know that that whole thing. The older I got and thought about it, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. And moving on. <laughs> well, actually, actually, I'll give you because I was I was going to bring this up, but Cindy, do you have any thoughts on the cover? Not any that probably need to be uh, recorded. <laughs> so, you know. Eduardo Barreto really knew how to draw sexy but classy looking women. Mm-hmm. I will give him that. You know, she's very, you don't see much of Ivy. All, you, all you're getting is her face, but she's very, and her lips, of course, but mm-hmm. she's very, very sexy here. She's hot, as Shag would say. And uh, it's also interesting, you know, the animated series permanently made Ivy's hair red, but it was really just brown yeah, or yeah. chestnut as they said in who's who <laughs> <laughs> well it nice. had to be more of that earthen sort of quality to give it the more natural sort of woodland goddess or look but right 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 yes one of the questions i had for you both favorite incarnation of this character um, be it the comics or the animated series or some other media. Certainly, Cindy, I, I think we can both agree Uma Thurman in that movie. That's definitely. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 you, no. You can cut this out if you want, but the line, my garden needs tending, always bothered me. It's like, lady, take care of that stuff beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> she was being completely literal. Ow. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, she was being literal. Robin, there's a weed eater over there. There's a pair of shears. Get to work, son. <laughs> Ew. There's, Ew. No, there's no symbolism in Moby Dick. It's just about a whale. <laughs> uh, but seriously, favorite uh, favorite versions of the character? Of course, it's going to be Bruce Tim. I mean, pretty much anytime you ask me about any character in the Batman verse. It's going to be Bruce Tim. All right. Well, I mean, I, I can't disagree with her. I think I like Ivy better and the animated version of Ivy best of all as well. I mean, especially, we, you know, we talked about that on the Supermates episode, but what they did with her, I mean, because she was very, she was a multifaceted character on there because you had, you know, she starts out being, the, you know, the vengeful seductress. She goes after pre-Two-Face Harvey Dent for, you know, developing this land for the prison and it's destroying this flower, you know, and all that. And then, Later on, she's you know she's a big sister to Harley, and and then there's that awesome you know house and garden episode where she makes her family. This is like the creepiest Batman the animated series episode yes. ever. Yeah, oh, but gosh. it's but it's great. I mean, it's yeah, and it you really feel sorry for her because she wants children, she can't have them, and she goes to some crazy lengths to get a family. Uh, you know, especially for for a kid's cartoon in the 90s. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I know it's blasphemy, but I had a fundamental problem with No Man's Land just because it was in the DC universe and they kept they played lip service to why the other characters wouldn't help. But I still called BS on almost all of it. Mm-hmm. But I thought they did some cool stuff with Ivy where she like had the orphans. She took the kids in, and she was actually a good guardian of them. And uh, Batman kind of left her alone because yeah. she was taking care of business in that part of town. He didn't have to worry about it, you know. And I liked that they did that with her. And uh, I think part of the reason they did that is because the animated series had made her popular and had shown other sides to her 
besides just being the Batman antagonist of the month, you know. Right. I think it kind of all grew out of the, the animated series. So, yeah, I've got to agree with Cindy. That's my favorite, too. Of course you do. <laughs> I'm contractually obligated to agree with Cindy. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I, I'm under no obligation, but I'll agree with her because she's right. I definitely like the animated series version. Uh, a close runner-up would be in my head canon now is Anne-Margaret in Batman 66. Yeah. <laughs> And also, I gotta admit, like I liked the way Alex Ross portrayed her in the Justice Maxi series, which, mm-hmm. admittedly, she was naked, just yeah. with with plants covering her, you know, lady parts. But, the bare essentials. That's it. Exactly. And on any other character, any other character, I would have said, "Okay, come on, that's too much. You're trying too hard to make this character sexy." But for her, you know what? That works. That's an appropriate version of the character within that setting. That's something that mm-hmm. she would do as a sort of incarnation of this sort of the Earth Mother type of thing, of being au right. natural. I'm surprised they made a toy of it, and I wanted to buy that toy, but I held back. <laughs> but yeah. for the purposes of that story, I was like, all right, all right, I think you did well. So. I've got that one, but... Uh... <laughs> But, you know, it's kind of interesting because there's a panel. You know, it's funny how comic characters, certain panels pop out in your head. Mm-hmm. And from that storyline I was talking about that involved the pre-Robin Jason Todd, uh, the Batman issue was drawn by the late, great Don Newton. And there was a panel of all these Gotham billionaires that Ivy had like vines running into their heads. And I think she was tr- either turning them into the, the muck creature she had, the, the plant creature she had or something. But she was skimping around in a bikini version of her outfit that was like super, super tiny. And I mean, that was that was Don Newton's version of what Alex Ross did later. Sure. And, you know, he couldn't quite get away with what he did. But that stuck out in my mind. And even then, as, a, as I was probably like nine or ten, I still thought it didn't. I mean, it jumped out of me it's like, whoa, she's almost naked. But it, it, it didn't come to me as this being overly gratuitous for that character it makes sense mm-hmm. you know well i definitely think i mean maybe it's partly based on the success they have had with harley quinn recently it feels like dc is trying to push her in more directions I mean, she was part of that gotham city sirens where she was partnered with harley and catwoman at the beginning of the new 52 she was on a heroic team in birds of prey in which everyone said, you know, she's going to betray you, don't you? And they, she betrayed them. Mm. Um, but, you know, she's got a miniseries out right now called Cycle of Life and Death. I've read the first issue. It's not for me. The art looks really nice, but the story's not for me. Um, but, yeah, I think I think DC likes her and they want to do more with the character. So I hope they do because I, I like her. She's one of my favorite Batman villains. It wouldn't surprise me if Suicide Squad, the film goes over well, that she won't appear in a sequel. Uh, she seems like the, of course, she's got a history with the Suicide Squad. She actually did appear in the comic toward the end of mm-hmm. the first run after this yep. story. And, you know, of course, the connection with Harley, uh, I'm sure Harley's going to live at the end of this movie, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah so, <laughs> and if they're, you know, they're trying to connect it, if they, you know, I mean, who knows how the, the DC Universe movies are going to continue. But if they do go on with it, I could definitely see them roping her in because she is a name that people know. Uh, and you know, there's that connection to Harley and the connection to Batman. So it's just kind of a no brainer and it's kind of surprising. She's not in this, but I, maybe they figured there was enough Batman characters in it right. already. So, you know what my favorite part of Harley Quinn in the suicide squad movie is 
What's that? Fishnets. <laughs> Why did I not know that? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for being on this episode of Secret Origins. Where can we hear more from you if we want to hear more of this wonderful husband-wife banter, and especially the off-mic punching that goes on? <laughs> well, you don't have to go far. If you're on the Fire & Water website, just go up to off the Secret Origins page, go up to Shows, click on Supermates, and there we are. <laughs> and I love being able to say that because I don't have to go through, oh, we're at blah, 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 blah. No, that's where we're at, or you know, iTunes, but... We're part of the feed. We've got our own feed, so we're out there, and we talk about. And there's a, he always says at least one dumb thing per episode, so there's always at least one wop. So you know. <laughs> yes, it is a staple of the show. In as much as Shag will always call somebody hot in an episode, we always have to have that Christopher Pam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you know yes, what. We did. In my mind, every time that happens, I get a little Batman 66, like, sound effect, you know. (laughs) Bow! Exactly. (laughs) All right, you two. Thank you very much once again for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. On the last episode, Diablo Frank and I covered the Martian Manhunter story, and we talked about how Ken Stacy's art seemed to influence Darwin Cook, who wrote one of the best Martian Manhunter stories ever in The New Frontier. A lot of people mentioned that story in their comments, and it made it a little harder to read before recording this. Had this episode come out last week like it was intended, it wouldn't be an issue. But as I prepare the listener feedback section, I'm filled with sadness that Darwin Cook, one of my favorite creators, died very early on the morning of Saturday, May 14th. The fact that he was battling an aggressive form of cancer was only made public on Friday, and pretty much everyone I know on social media started plastering their walls with Darwin Cook art and messages of support. There was a lot of confusion after he died because some people close to the family sent out word before Cook's family wanted the announcement made. Those tweets or messages were then deleted, which meant more confusion as people weren't sure if the reports of his death were premature. Had people jumped the gun? Well, eventually the family made the official announcement. Darwin Cook, the author of The New Frontier, the Parker graphic novels based on Richard Stark's books, the guy who redesigned Catwoman for the Ed Brubaker run, and the author of one of my favorite Superman stories, Kryptonite from Superman Confidential, and you can go way back to episode one of this podcast to hear me recommend that book. Darwin Cook has died. I read Green Lantern Rebirth and The New Frontier right around the same time, almost ten years ago now. That's how long I've been a big DC fan. Those were the books, the gateway drugs, that got me into these stories. Without The New Frontier, I don't pick up the Showcase Presents volumes of the Silver Age superheroes. I don't fall in love with the history of this universe. And I certainly don't give a damn about Secret Origins. If it hadn't been for that book, I don't know what I'd be doing right now, but I'd probably have more money, more free time, be in better shape, have kids... But I wouldn't have you guys, and that would be a shame. So, thanks, Darwin. And speaking of you people, the last episode of Secret Origins Podcast received new Twitter favorites and retweets from 
Aaron Moss, Alan Middleton, Ange, Ben Marvels at Marvel, Booster Gold, Buck at Highball2814, Captain Marvel, Cash Flag, Chris Sheehan, Comic Reflections, Dan at Dinosaur No One, David Gallagher, David Gutierrez, David Martinez, Diablo Frank, Doug Zavisha, Dr. G, Nerdologist, DS and RS, Enigma, Emily Blue, Eric Conrad, Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, FKA Jason, Gail Hogard, Geekitude, Gen X-Wing Podcast, Georgia McKenzie, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Illegal Machine, Josh Lowe, Keith G. Baker, Mario at Luther Lang, Marvin at Marvin Decatur, Oscar Blue Devil, Radio vs. the Martians, Rebecca Johnson, Richard Field, Rift, World Spine Podcast, Silver and Gold Podcast, Son of Cthulhu, Star War Otter 66, that's how it's written, Supergirl Radio, Too Dangerous, Two True Freaks, Waiting for Doom, and Willie Yarbrough. New Facebook likes and shares came from Al Sedano, Alex Osias, Andre Lashley, Andrew Leyland, Andy Capellish, Blake Lugosi, Chris Bailey, Christopher Ouellette, Clinton Robison, David Ace Gutierrez, David Edward Cooper, Dale Dale, Eric Best, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Jared Driscoll, Jay Jones, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McClinchy, Kalel Kamandi, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Luke Dobb, Max Romero, Mike Gillis, Nicholas Prom, Paul Cornish, Ramon Zermino, Ruth Sutherland, Samantha Hicks, Sean Emmons, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Sean Strawbridge, every other Sean, the Silver and Gold Podcast, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Uh, Sean Walsh left a comment on Facebook about the Booster Gold origin, explaining that the armor suit Booster wore during Extreme Justice was built for him by Ted Kord after Booster was injured during the battle with Doomsday. I think at one point I knew that, but forgot about it at some point. So anyway, thank you, Sean, for that comment. And moving on to the website comments, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, I'm not going to read every word of every comment, but I do encourage everyone to visit the website and follow the complete discussion there. Last episode, just as a reminder, covered the origins of three JLI members, Booster Gold, The Martian Manhunter, and Maxwell Lord. The first comment came from Chris Franklin, who you just heard a couple of minutes ago. Chris said, you and Andy have sold me on the second Booster series. I need to check that out. Yeah, I've only read about the first year of the post-52 Booster Gold series when Jeff Johns was writing it with Dan Jurgens, but those issues were really enjoyable. Uh, Chris goes on, The Martian Manhunter story is one of the best of the entire series. I really don't have much to add that you and Frank didn't cover, but I've always loved this one, and I'm glad it got reprinted in the Secret Origins trade paperback. Jeff Nettleton, former guest of the show, said, I was disappointed that the Booster Gold story didn't follow him to prison, where the Warden forces him to force a team of cons to play the guards, then throw the game. All kidding aside, if Booster had appeared in the early 70s, Burt Reynolds would have been perfect for the movie. Then, talking about the Martian Manhunter story, Jeff said, Mark Verheiden was a favorite writer, starting with his work on Dark Horse's The American, as well as Aliens and Predator, launching the long association with Dark Horse and the film properties. One major thing that Ken Stacy was known for was the graphic novel The Sacred and the Profane, done with fellow Canadian Dean Motter. 
The team started it in Mike Friedrich's Star Reach, then it was completed at Epic and reprinted by Eclipse. It's an amazing piece of work and one of the true pioneering works of the graphic novel, even though it started as a serial. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast, Pod Dylan, and the Film and Water podcast said, If I were a lesser person, I would write a review of Frank's appearance and make it so long and circuitous and loaded with obscure detail that by the time everyone was done reading it, they found themselves exhausted and demoralized, wondering why they ever started podcasting in the first place. But I'm rising above. Good for you, Rob. That said, if there is one person I would actually love to see write a Martian Manhunter comic, it would be Frank. He has such a grasp of the micro and macro that his fandom for the character would probably result in the best Martian Manhunter comics ever done, since he appreciates the silliness inherent, but also larger themes that could work as the background for great comic stories. Sadly, he'd probably clash with the editors and leave the book by issue 3. That seems like an accurate assessment, yeah. Uh, Rob continues, I like hearing Doug Zavisha on the podcast. Please have him back to discuss a character I give a rat's ass about. Well, I hope you like El Diablo. And Rob concludes with, The amount of work you put into these Secret Origins episodes is simply staggering, Ryan. This show is a towering achievement. Well said. I completely agree. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, We didn't need all that money for special effects anyway, said... I must admit, I have never seen the appeal of Booster Gold. This episode definitely increased my interest. I didn't know about the undercurrent of regret, and that second series, especially that Killing Joke issue, sounds fascinating. Yep, issue 5, I think, of the 2007 Booster Gold series. It might continue into issue 6. Ange goes on to say, I am getting the current Martian Manhunter book. It is a trippy, wild book with all sorts of threads. Kaiju, black magic, split personalities, science fiction. I don't know if it is a true genre book. I could rewrite a few words and make this a Shade the Changing Man book or an Amethyst book. But it is entertaining. David Ace Gutierrez said, Like Ange, I never warmed to Booster Gold. I would have rather had Cord survive and let this idiot die. But what can you do? Those Martian Manhunter and Maxwell Lord stories were pretty good, though, given their limited space. Well, speaking of limited space, Diablo Frank, who actually appeared on the last episode, left comments on the other two stories that came in at three and a half pages long. Naturally, I'm trimming a whole lot of this stuff, but of the Max Lord story, Frank said, Maxwell Lord is snapper card done right. They even sort of look alike if you squint a little and adjust for rampant income inequality. In the first adventure of the New Justice League, this random dude inserts himself and inexplicably becomes an important ongoing element of the book, despite not being a superhero. When Max was created by Keith Giffen, he was intended to be a mysterious mover and shaker without anyone knowing what the character's endgame was, just like Snapper was supposed to be a reader identification character without Schwartz or Fox knowing anything about youth culture or what to actually do with the little idiot. Snapper Carr was an unnecessary, unwanted, space-wasting add-on to a book starring DC's greatest icons. Max Lord was arguably the star of Justice League International, representing all of the characters that shouldn't be associated with the League because they were too minor or compromised, but ultimately wins reader affection and proves their value as the heroes who showed up when the big shots were otherwise engaged. There's a lot more of Frank's dissection of Max Lord, but I'm moving on. Of Booster Gold, Frank had much to say. 
In a recent First Strike podcast, Siskoid referred to me as a ruiner, and I expect I'll be pulling the wettest blanket over Michael John Carter that I am capable of saturating. Fanboy discretion is advised. Frank then wrote 900 words about why Booster Gold is awful and should have gone to jail. He concludes this treatise with... Booster Gold is the superheroic icon of white male privilege. He served on international teams that for years were made up solely of Caucasians by birth or choice. He has powers and opportunities he never earned and has committed gross injustices that he will never be punished for. He loudly demands respect and acknowledgement while offering none in return. Despite never being any kind of sales success, he's been floated two ongoing series and numerous miniseries while being a prominent member of a slew of teams and has rarely left the public eye for any length of time in 30 years. He's blown through fortunes and women without much seeming regard or appreciation for either. He's a braggart despite rampant naked insecurities and a long history of failures in his profession. Despite all this, he's endeared himself to a small but rabid following, and his next second chance is always right around the corner. Booster Gold is Donald Trump in spandex, and don't it make your white-collar gold? So, there's that. Martin Gray, who I think I always put Martin's comments after Frank's because I know he'll pick me up. Martin, from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, said, Ken Stacy did a few Legion covers on the Baxter run. They were oddly effective. My mother was a Baxter. That's why I'm of such high quality. Nice. See? Okay. One of the reasons I liked Max Lord immediately was that he had such great hair. He was based on Sam Neill visually, wasn't he? Uh, yes, Sam Neill from The Omen Part 3. Martin goes on, I haven't got the issue at hand. Was the computer that messed with Max the Kilgore? And is that pronounced Kilgore or Kill Percentage Gore? Or perhaps Kilgore's daddy, the Construct? To which Jimmy McGlinchey replied, I think Gerard Jones retconned the computer to be Kilgore. I had always thought the computer was connected somewhat to the New Gods originally. Uh, Jimmy then said, I agree with Ryan and Andy about how good Booster Gold Volume 2 was. The story where Booster went back to try and save Barbara was very moving, and it also led to the softening of the Batman character. Bruce's comment that he could never replace Ted as Booster's friend, but that he would always be there to be a sounding board if Booster ever needed it was very sincere. In my mind, I would have loved it if they had Booster follow up on that offer, and you could have had a one-and-done issue of Booster talking with Batman, a la what they did in Starman with the Talking with David chapters. Jimmy also recommended two other Martian Manhunter stories, both from Justice League International annuals. JLI Annual No. 1 had John battle the entire League as an alien parasite infected the world, heading to the ultimate sacrifice by Jean. I believe this may have led into the four-issue miniseries in the 1980s. While The Man I Never Was from JLI Annual No. 3, where Jean and the Batman teamed up to find the killer of a cop who Jean was friends with in his early John Jones detective days. Like Frank says, the character does lend itself to all types of stories, and you can go from science fiction to detective noir to comedy to straight superhero action very easily with Jean compared to other characters. 
Michelle Fifa said, I don't get the lukewarm response that this triptych cover has received. I think Ordway did a phenomenal job. Giving variation to flight is no easy feat. And Templeton, a great penciler in his own right, pulled it all together without dominating the piece. The staging isn't boring at all, and if it would have been played up for laughs, it would have been too on the nose. The actual contents are uneven, as your analysis proved, but man, these covers are definitely more than serviceable. Well, I think I mentioned as a whole, the three covers together are pretty good. They're not as popping and exciting as Ordway's other work, but they're still really good. However, each one taken individually loses something. I don't think anyone thinks they're bad, but we reviewed them one at a time, and I don't think they're really meant to be viewed that way. Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks and 90s Comics Retrial said, John Jones is a character that I like quite a bit, but all because of seeing him in media outside of the actual comics. I first truly paid attention to him in the animated adaptation of New Frontier, which made me appreciate his presence on the Justice League cartoon all the more, and I now find him to be one of the highlights of Supergirl, a show that I appear to like much more than many other geeks. Probably because, again, I know the characters, but not in super detail, so I don't get that. That is not what insert character here is supposed to act like rage. You know, a lot of people liked Supergirl, just not enough for CBS to pay to keep it on their own network. We got a comment from Mark Baker Wright regarding the Listener Appreciation Contest. That is still going on, by the way, people. I outlined the contest details last episode, but basically, if you write an iTunes review for 12 of the shows on the Fire & Water Podcast Network, you will be entered into a drawing for a chance to win a care package of free comics that includes a copy of Secret Origins issue 41 signed by writers Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn, the guys who created Blue Devil even though that's not at all what issue 41 is about. Still. Anyway, Mark wrote in, Now I have a bit of a dilemma. I love the contest idea, but am stymied by the requirement to post feedback on all of those 12 podcasts. No offense intended, but I do not like all of them equally, and normally I would just leave my negative comments to myself. A podcast I don't like may still appeal to others, obviously, but I don't have that option if I still want to enter. I may still go ahead and would try to be as kind as possible, but the fact remains. Sorry, but those are the contest requirements. 12 reviews. They don't have to be good reviews, although that would be appreciated. They also don't have to be honest reviews. You might hate my Star Wars show, for example, but if you can make up some crap that sounds nice, you're still entered. But that's between you and your conscience. And our final comment of the episode comes from the irredeemable shag of, you know it, Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. Also, I think he's got a new gig on Stella's Batgirl to Oracle show? I don't know. Anyway, shag said, I have been horribly negligent in leaving comments during your Justice League International coverage. Yeah, we noticed. Part of me was simply reveling in all of the JLI chocolatey goodness. Part of me was just crazy busy and very ill. Overall, it was a wonderful three episodes, even without THE resident JLI expert that you happen to know and didn't bother to invite. I don't believe I've ever read these particular issues, so it was a treat to hear new JLI adventures. I've got some random thoughts from the past three episodes, so I'll run through those here. Mr. Miracle and Oberon Always a pleasure to hear David Gutierrez on a podcast. I miss our Ultraverse podcast days, and I'm happy to see he's still finding work. Looking at the sample pages, some of those panels are great mimics of Kirby. The split storytelling is an interesting idea, but sorry to hear it didn't live up to its potential. 
Green Flame. Always a pleasure to hear Tim Wallace on a podcast. In fact, he's my co-host on the next episode of the JLI podcast. Those sample pages are hilarious, and you can really see the Cherry Pop-Tart influence. Bwahaha! Given her ridiculous powers, I'm pleased Tom and Mary Beerbaum went for the ridiculous approach to her origin. And obviously, fire is hot. Ice Maiden. Always a pleasure to hear Paul Hicks on a podcast. Love his Waiting for Doom. The art in this story looks pretty good from the sample pages, but the story just sounds nuts. And thanks for pointing out the gratuitous butt shots, boys. Well spotted. Captain Adam. Always a pleasure to hear Jay Jones on a podcast. His Silver and Gold podcast is a hoot. Jay, you had me at Doctor Who Marvel Comics and then lost me with your love for Extreme Justice. Seriously? That series was terrible. It's like a cake baked wrong. I did enjoy the concept behind the Captain Adam origin in this issue. Fun way to highlight his fake origin without rehashing what was told in his own series fairly recently. Rocket Red. Always a pleasure to hear Dr. G on a podcast. I've just recently tried his Secret Sagas of the Multiverse episodes and greatly enjoyed them. Now, is it just me, or does Dr. G sound like a voice clone of John Wilson? I can't tell them apart. That Rocket Red origin sounds insane, and the sample art with the mouth cannon? WTF! Nort. Always a pleasure to hear Paul Spataro and Andy Leyland on a podcast. I'm a fan of Back to the Bins and Hey Kids Comics. One day I'm going to retire and be able to catch on all of their other shows too. Such a fun-looking story. You could hear Paul and Andy really enjoying themselves with this nutty tale, and their thoughts about Sean Engel were very touching. Sean was a great guy, loved by so many. Booster Gold. Always a pleasure to hear Andy Capellish on an episode. Love his film and water appearances. I was fascinated by the Booster Gold history you all shared about Dan Jurgens having to change Booster's origin away from Superman. I'd never heard that before. Martian Manhunter. Oh, Frank. That guy again. Yeah, I know him from his other podcasts and stuff. Sounds like a really nice Manhunter story that covers the origin without having to rehash too much of what was already covered recently in his own miniseries. And boy, you are right. You can see the Darwin-Cook similarity in those sample pages. Wow. Maxwell Lord. Always a pleasure to hear Doug Zavisha on a podcast. Love the times we've recorded with him on Fire and Water, plus his appearances on Waiting for Doom. One small correction to Ryan's recap of Max's history, Max actually developed the mental powers after the gene bomb went off in Invasion, so he used them, mostly responsibly, for years before Countdown to Infinite Crisis. Again, a really great series of episodes. It made for a wonderful celebration of Justice League International, great job by all of your guests, and I suppose you did okay too, Ryan. You know, that's all I ever wanted to hear from Shag, just those four words. You did okay too. That is all for this episode, dear listeners. Next time, we're back to only two stories an issue. Thank the heavens. In the meantime, I want to thank my guests, Chad Bokelman and Mark Marble from the Lantern Cast, and Chris and Cindy Franklin from Supermates. Also want to thank everyone who supports this show on social media or leaves a comment on the website, Facebook, or Twitter. Go out and write some iTunes reviews. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. 
All music, audio clips, and quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Come on without, come on Everybody's gonna wanna doze Come on without Something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Beware Where my power. My power. <laughs> we knew we were trying to Let's do a three count. And then, all right, yep. so and he can so edit out. Three out loud to make sure we get it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, he can edit it out. Yeah. Three, two, two one. one. Beware my <laughs> power. Oh, come on now. <laughs> one more time. <laughs> one. Two, three, beware my, my power. <laughs> All right, how about oh. I? <laughs> All right, one, two, three. Beware. <laughs> that sounded good. I liked the silence. That was definitely worth it. <laughs> <laughs> how are you saying it, Mark? Are you like, yeah. beware my it's power? Or? Want me to say it? Do you want me to say it faster? I'll say it. If you want me to say, beware my power, I'll do that. If you want me to be more dramatic and go, beware my I like to space it out. Beware my power. I can do that too. Brian, show you tell me, man. All right, and you guys can actually do the whole thing, and I'll jump in on the second half. So, why don't you read it like, "Beware my power, Green Lantern's light." So. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So, one, one, two, three. Beware my power. power. Mark is cutting out. You. Yeah, you were cutting out, buddy. Was I? Yeah, yeah, we couldn't hear you at all. That kind of sucked because we were like in good rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Try it again. One, two, three. Beware my, my power. power. Green lantern's, lantern's light. light. All right. Damn it. You know what? Damn it. <laughs> let's do We're going to record this. We can do this. this. No, let's record it individually, and then I'll overlap them when I just edit it. That so. works. <laughs> so I was like, you use Audacity, right? Can't we just overlap these? <laughs> yeah, I'll figure out. We can do this. All right, so Chad, you do it. Beware my power. Green okay. Lantern's light. <clears throat> Beware my power. Green Lantern's light. All right, Mark, you do the same. Beware my power. Green Lantern's light. Green Lantern's light. All right. Okay.
That only took like nine minutes longer than I thought. Well, it we knew that was <laughs> we knew that was going to be the hardest part of the whole thing. Whenever you got to sing stuff up like that, it's <laughs> like, hey, you're the son of a bitch who's like, let's switch up the whole format of the show for a minute. 